If you do not stop following me, I will kill one of them. Do you understand? No more warnings. is over but we have to go back down the hatch it's the lost rewatch podcast here on post show recaps hello everybody i'm josh wiggler i'm joined by mike bloom and man jack just got a whooping uh listening to that intro tough to tough to re to relive that uh such a beat down yeah i mean it's tough to shine a light on it especially since it's so dark here josh take this flashlight whoops Thunk. Clunk. Oh, did someone did someone get punched or did you discover a hatch? I mean, I can't tell. <laughs> the sound of the flashlight hitting the hatch is pretty close to what it sounds like when someone gets punched in the face on Lost. <laughs> uh, just like pounding something onto uh, onto metal. Uh, seems maybe to maybe the, this the was like into. the big secret was that Desmond got hit in the face with the flashlight. Like you heard, like oh brother. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. I feel like we would have heard about that in a future season, but maybe it was just a deleted scene. That's possible. true. We do see like every scene involving the hatch from like three different perspectives <laughs> over the course of season two. So it would have been in there. Oh my God, Mike, the hatch is finally on Lost. Uh, ah! the, the, the thing that gave us the name of this podcast has arrived. Yes, at the tail end, at the last five seconds of the episode to be dragged out for the rest of the season. But oh my God, this is a game changer game for lost in the in the past few episodes which have been such big game changers not to mention the name changers and mr ethan rom and walt shaming him for doing so there's a lot to get into with that obviously we have uh the search for claire the hunt for red uh, clairber if you Ugh. will and charlie <laughs> <laughs> terrible you love it no, you love it i guess i do i do uh we get as we talked about in the opening jack getting farkist Charlie certainly gets Farkas in one sense, one shape or form. It's it's a big episode, Josh, with a big title to. Play. I was gonna say all the best cowboys have daddy issues uh, is a mouthful for sure. See, that's what you should say the disgusted reaction for personally. No, I love the, it. The, the hunt for Reda Clairber might have been a better title. No, for it's this not. It's absolutely that. not. It's definitely. I not. think it's a perfect mm, title. All right, well let's let's pull the masses and see what they think. All the best I'm cowboys. Call up Sean Connery and ask him. All the best. Cowboys. That's what it's typically uh, shorthanded as. Uh, one of uh, one of my favorite titles for an episode of Lost, to be honest, and one of my favorite episodes of Lost. Although I love them all so much, uh, this is such an intense episode, uh, very action oriented, a thrill ride, clarifying or clarifying, if you'd prefer, 
Mike, uh, the relationship with Jack and Christian, uh, introducing the hatch, so expanding the mythology. And as far as like sense memory goes, um, as far as like uh, that state dependent memory of watching Lost and where was I when I was watching this episode on December 8th, 2004, uh, this was the last episode of Lost. Uh, of 2004 before taking yeah. a month long break and this what a christmas episode i know and this was this was right before uh my 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 first semester of sophomore year ended at syracuse university back then by this point in lost's run i had all of my friends hooked we were watching it in our dorm room uh and we were all like gobsmacked by the ending like that sequence where charlie is hanging from the tree and for so much of it you think oh god he's dead uh and then he you know bursts back to life i will never forget watching that for the first time and i will never forget walking away from that and me and coconut pete looking at each other and saying all right at least we know if there's one character now who has the immunity necklace and is never gonna die it's charlie because they had their shot they had their chance to kill Charlie, and they didn't take it. They had an epic death scene for him, and they didn't go with it. So Charlie is safe from this point forward. Uh, how how uh, how sweet it was to be. Josh, so you're young. enough of a survivor. Yeah, you're enough of a survivor fan to know that you give away the immunity necklace before every challenge. Yeah. You know, Charlie had a bit of like a Colby Donaldson, Terry Dietz run for a second, but even they got outdone by the end there by their respective winners. I mean, to your point. We haven't talked too much about, like, the historical stuff that's been happening with Lost behind the scenes, but I, I seem to recall that around this time was when there was some rumors spreading about how, you know, Lost, I think, was originally promised, and this goes back to maybe some of the mistruths that was put out in the original series Bible about how, oh, yeah, you know, major characters are going to just get killed off one after another by the monster or by each other. We really hadn't gotten that as of yet. You know, we had, obviously, uh, we had pilot norton in the first episode we had the the marshal and and, and tabula rasa but we hadn't really had many people on the death counter as of yet but i remember some rumors being spread of like a main cast member is going to die at some point right. in season one and uh when you look at you know poor mr dominic monahan's feet hanging from the, those banyan trees you're like okay this is like our big you know before we break for the the end of the year the holiday season this is the big thing to leave people hanging on quite literally, until the beginning of the year. So, yeah, suffice it to say, we were all surprised in more ways than one when we get that big fake out that, no, Charlie has skirted death for now. Yeah, no, it was, it was so great. It was so memorable to me. This is one of my earliest... Um, this is, like, my, my most... This is my most vivid early lost memory is is watching mm-hmm. this episode. Like I remember literally exactly where I was sitting. I can see the room. I can see the TV. I know what angle I was in in the room. Uh, was it I a good remember angle? the. I, yeah, I, I was like in the back corner of the room sitting next to my friend Pete. And I remember like the looks on people's faces. I remember this was like the first moment where everybody had to shut up. Nobody could talk. <laughs> Because uh, Charlie's hanging from the tree, and that's crazy. Uh, so I love this episode. Um, you know, spoiler alert for for how I ra- ranked it in the end. Uh, my initial ranking of it, I gave it a pure four point two. 
and I and I and I walked that back ultimately. And like even now, like I feel like I should have just stuck with the four point two. But I'm gonna I'm gonna stay with where I where I locked myself up. Uh, but this is one of my favorites. I just I love this episode so so much. So we're talking about it. We're talking about all the best cowboys have daddy issues. Of course, uh, this is a spoiler filled lost rewatch podcast here on Posher Recaps. We want you to subscribe if you have not done so already. PosherRecaps.com slash down the hatch. Your ratings and reviews greatly appreciated uh you can send us feedback we've got a feedback section we will be getting into uh in about like four hours from now uh we'll see how long this takes us down the hatch roughly hopefully hopefully it takes lesser time than a very hectic heart surgery we'll see we'll see down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com is our email address send that feedback in by no later than monday evenings if you can afford to do that uh you can also hit us up on twitter uh i'm at round howard mike is at a mike bloom type and make sure that you are tagging at Post Show Recaps as well. With that said, Mike, we go forth into the jungle. All the best cowboys have daddy issues. Directed by Stephen Williams, a prolific director, uh, certainly of Lost and many, many other things. Working with Damon Lindelof on Watchmen, uh, which just debuted. Shout out to the series regular Watchmen coverage that I'm doing over at The Hollywood Reporter with Antonio Mazzaro. If you're watching Watchmen and you want to have a podcast companion along for the ride, subscribe to the series regular podcast on The Hollywood Reporter. That's where you find us. This episode was written by Javier Grio Marks Watch, uh, who we have referenced Multiple oh, times. Oh, Mark's Watchmen. Yes, Mark's Watchmen. That's right. Uh, who had written House of the Rising Sun, which we were very, very happy with a few weeks ago. Uh, and yet another remarkable effort from uh, JGM here on All the Best Cowboys. As mentioned, this was released originally December 8th, 2004. And it focuses in flashback form on Jack. The second Jack Shepard flashback, which means, as we've been doing here along the way, Mike, uh, with the series Bible readings that we've been doing, the character bios hailing from the series Bibles, we've already read the Jack one, so what are we even doing here? I mean, uh, that's a general question to be applied to all the stuff we do <laughs> on this podcast, yeah. but I'm not sure, Josh, what book of the Bible could we possibly crack open now that the Book of Shepherd has promptly been, you know, uh, analyzed well, this, previously on this podcast? This was something that some people had uh, had had drawn to our attention, including the great Jim Fells, whose music uh, videos, you, his analysis videos, you should all be watching. Uh, Jim Fells had written in and said, it's sad that we're going to be departing from the early, cha- uh, the early character descriptions from the series Bible. I'm not sure what Jack's full story would be, but the capitalized words would definitely include lunch, hepatic artery, and death. Uh... I don't know about that, Jim. Um, but how about this? This is this is uh, this is the compromise that I've landed upon. How about a down the hatch series Bible, Mike? Uh, oh boy! At, so so this feels sacrilegious. So, so this is the proposal. As we are getting to people who have repeat flashbacks, as we're getting to their second and third and fourth and fifth flashbacks, rather than rereading and relitigating uh, the ser- the official series Bible entry on Jack Shepard. How about we develop some series Bible entries of our own for prominent characters featured in this episode? Uh, and this was an idea that, that I had thrown out there and the great Ben, uh, ben Martell, the Ben behind the curtain, seized upon and took a crack at writing a down-the-hatch series Bible entry for Christian Shepard, who is going to have a very important role to play in all the best Cowboys, certainly his most prominent appearance on Lost 
to date. Uh, and of course, it's not a series Bible entry if it doesn't have some factual inaccuracies and if it doesn't have some awkwardly capitalized uh, statements. Um, so this is what Ben Ben Martell whipped up. You tell me if you think that this is in line with the series Bible tradition. This is about Christian Shepherd. You ready? Oh, yeah. Okay. Despite being a talented career man at the pinnacle of his profession. Christian's drive has seen him turn to alcohol to distract him from the stress of making life and death decisions and from his failed relationship with his son. Having lost his medical license for operating impaired, Christian left for Australia in search of a renowned document forger who might be able to illicitly give him a second chance at a career and a second chance at building a bond with Jack. But Christian had no idea that he was on a collision course with fate and that it would leave him in a coffin. That's it. Okay. So a few things about this. Uh, First, I'm pretty sure Christian's related to Jack, not son. So Mm -hmm. I was very confused about why they would capitalize that more so. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So I guess what's Christian's big plan, according to our faux series Bible was he was going to go to Australia, find some sort of, black market grifter to craft what like a medical certificate that says oh he was not disbarred from the medical association for drinking while while operating yeah maybe like when he has that conversation with sawyer uh later on this season that was who he was hoping to meet and he just got like cold feet and by the time he met sawyer he was like yeah i can't i'm too embarrassed to ask too embarrassed to to forge my docs he sees a little kid in the bar that he's drinking with so- and Sawyer with, and he's like, oh, I can't do it anymore. Yeah. There's a kid involved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's always, I'm out. <laughs> always makes things awkward. Uh, I think a coffin being capitalized makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, that's, yeah. That's- I mean, that's that's actually maybe even more appropriate than what we usually get from the series Bible. Like, I think that would probably be the capitalized word in the, in the OG series Bible. So I think we're, we're even improving upon the source material, which the actual show did as well. All right. So it's got some factual inaccuracies. It's got capitalization. We're going to be talking a lot about Christian Shepherd in this episode. Uh, maybe this is something we can apply to the Down the Hatch Wikipedia page as we are building out the Down the Hatch series Bible. Maybe not just even for characters, uh, but for, uh, I, I mean, Life. I, I struggle to think about what it will be for whatever the case may be. Is it going to be a series Bible entry on the frickin' case? On the plane? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, a gun. A gun. I don't know. Oh, my God. All right, well, we'll get there next week. Let's talk about the episode. Let's talk about all the best cowboys, and let's do it with the assistance of eight sounds from the episode. And we really waste no time, Mike. We launch right into it. We pick up from where we are when Hurley revealed that there was somebody who wasn't on the plane. And it's sheer pandemonium as everybody's trying to process what Hurley's just revealed. Uh, and somehow Jack is the guy who puts it together. Uh, he's like, where's Ethan? Where's Charlie? Uh, and Locke is there to be like, uh, Charlie went after Claire. And everyone's like, okay, that's bad. Because we know that somebody has been attacking Claire now. Uh, it makes a lot of sense that somebody's been attacking Claire. If there's somebody who wasn't on the plane, Ethan's not here. Claire's not here. Charlie's not here. People are probably in the process of being kidnapped. Yeah. And maybe Locke's also at the same time like, hey, Jack, want to go for a quick jungle run? I need to get my steps in today. He needs to get his steps in. Yeah. He's very, uh, yeah. Now that he has the opportunity, he really wants to get those yeah. steps <laughs> he wants He wants to stretch his legs. Make it up now for that lost he has time. The ability- because immediately we like cut right from that to like full panning shot of those two ripping through the jungle. They're going to be much more slow and deliberate through the rest of this episode. But like you said, it is 
high octane from the very beginning as these two guys just rip through the jungle in an effort to try to find Charlie and Claire. Yeah, with the rollicking Giacchino score underneath. It's really intense. Uh, they find uh, Claire's fallen blanket. Uh, Jack says she was moving back to the beach. Loxie's three distinct sets of foot, foot, uh, footprints. Uh, there's the signs of a struggle. I think finally we're getting our uh, our CSI Lost episode. Uh, the ABC brass must be thrilled that they are getting like their detective show on their island show right now. Yeah, and then that's when uh, Locke puts on Sawyer sunglasses and says, looks like this case is a real drag. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> wow! Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, he says, I think they've been taken. Uh, goes full Liam Neeson in that moment. And Jack is screaming his head off. Uh, screaming after Claire, screaming after Charlie, and Locke goes, Jack, shh. <laughs> I love that. He shushes uh, him. He shushes I, him. I, I do love, like, patronizing Locke here. He's going to say later on in the episode, like, basically, you be the doctor, I'll be the hunter. It very much goes back to, like, the Sawyer conversation back in the pilot of the roles that people are playing and how we're starting to muddy the waters a bit. We're starting to blend those watercolors to create different colors. But at the moment, Locke is very much like, this is my territory. If there are indeed other people that kidnap Charlie and Claire, please do not draw attention to us by screaming your head off in the middle of the jungle. And yeah, just the, the patronizing <laughs> it's just it's so it's so lovely yeah. this is i'm so Locke has been sitting on the sidelines sans really uh driving saeed to do some crazy things in the past few episodes but this is really a big return to form for john Locke this episode yeah, well, Locke's gonna be activated uh we're get, we're gonna get a whole lot of lock in the in the near future in, including in this episode but yeah the shushing leads us to the lost intro uh, and when we come back we're just in the same spot it's still jack and lock uh did you imagine if it cut back and he's still like Shh. yeah just like an extended <laughs> shush <laughs> no instead it's uh it's a little bit of a a little bit of a struggle between these people uh in fact let's listen in on a conversation between jack and lock as sound number one you're still fresh. This doesn't make any sense. How can one man drag off two people, one of them pregnant? Now you're asking the wrong question, not how. Why? You think it was Ethan? It certainly feels like it was Ethan, doesn't it? By himself? How? We can't account for all of our people. And more importantly, who's to say they're even our people? What? Saeed said there were others. Saeed said that we're not alone. Semantics. Saeed's injured. We don't even know where he went. He's delirious. telling you what the ground is telling you. So which way is the ground telling you that they went? Jack, we don't know what's going on here. We know enough. We need to prepare. We could be back at the caves in ten minutes. Organize a search party, get away. Which way did they go, Locke? Semantics, Josh. Yeah, semantics. Words matter, Mike. Words matter. Uh, aren't they both kind of right, though, in the end when Jack's like, I want to go right now. I want to find Charlie and Claire right this second. And Locke eventually says to him, like, let's go back, take 10 minutes, form a search party, get organized. And Jack doesn't want to be careful. He just wants to go off. Shouldn't, like, one of them go continue? And shouldn't, like, Locke be like, all right, I'm going to keep looking. I'm the tracker. You go back to the cave, organize a search party, and come follow me. I'll leave a trail or something like that. Why not just like, you know, pound the pavement? This has just happened. Well, see, you would say that, but they take the exact opposite viewpoints in that Jack is Jack would totally be fine with that. But he's the one who insists on plowing forward. He's going to say later on that what informs his psychology and granted, 
I think we'll talk about it. I don't know if how much of that psychology is, uh, you know, uh, should be correctly informing the way he behaves during the majority of this episode on the island. But I think he feels very guilty for him dismissing Claire's claims. And so he really wants to take care of this problem as soon as possible, whereas Locke is being a bit more pragmatic, which, again, is really interesting comparing these man of science, man of faith things. You know, it really hasn't been cemented yet until the end of season one, especially beginning of season two with the eponymous episode. And there are some mentions of, you know, Locke's faith to the island. I think the line, you're asking the long question, not how, but why, is just a big underlying statement of that. He doesn't really care about, ironically enough, the semantics of it all, the procedures behind it. He just knows that it happened for a reason. And he's looking into that, whereas Jack's more so looking into the nitty gritty of it all. But in this situation, Locke is being by far the more conventional person of, okay, this is how we need to proceed. Whereas Jack's like, no, we need to go, go, go. I'm just going to follow my hunch here. So it's always interesting to see these two sort of take on the characteristics of the opposite person. Uh, And I guess maybe Locke didn't want Jack to go off on his own because he doesn't have a good tracker with him. Otherwise, he'll... I mean, we, we're going to see that when Jack goes off on his own, he just goes in one big circle. Yeah, it just goes on the loop-de-loop. Uh, Jack's very hot-headed, right? He's a very hot-blooded guy, very emotional guy. He would be very angry to be called emotional, but that is exactly what he is. Uh, and even though he's the doctor and he should be back and let uh, you know, letting Locke be the hunter, Jack just can't abide. He cannot abide. Uh, and it's why some people are very frustrated with that character. It's why I love Jack as a character, but you have to love him warts and all, and you have to appreciate the fact that, man, sometimes Jack Shepard is a real asshole. Uh, and these are, this is one of those times where he just he cannot let it go. Um, we go to a flashback, Mike, uh, and there's a woman crashing on the table in the middle of an operating room. Uh, and it's, uh, of course, this is a nice nod, this, this being like the first flashback moment. This really uh, nods ahead at, uh, at Jack having to perform CPR by the end of the episode. Unfortunately, this time he cannot save the patient as hard as he tries. He is trying desperately to save this woman's life. Christian is in the back of the room telling Jack, call it, call it, Jack. It's over. Call it. And eventually Jack relents and he looks at Christian. He says, you call it dad. I thought I was going to say moon child. I don't think that's exactly <laughs> moon child. Maybe that would have worked. You must say his name, say Jack. His name, Jack. If only. Yeah, (laughs) Just as like the rain's blowing on him in the operating room. One of my favorite things that I've been noticing from this rewatch is how much they love to connect the present with the flashbacks through these like weaving lines. And we have one here where Jack says on the operating table, come on back. Yeah, no, as he's fruitlessly performing CPR here. Luckily, he's not gotten to the point of pounding on her chest 23 times like we'll get later on in this episode. But very thematic, not only applying to what he does with this poor woman, Beth, but also the fact that that's what he's trying to do with Charlie and Claire. He's telling them to come on back. Granted, he was yelling it beforehand, but he'll be a bit more cautious with his approach as he charges through the jungle here. All right, so back at the caves, Locke is going to recruit Kate to his cause. Uh, Boone is going to sign up. Shannon is not thrilled that Boone is volunteering for the mission, um, but Locke is more than happy to accept Boone's help. He wants another set of hands. Um, meanwhile, Walt is trying to tell Michael, like, why don't, why don't we send out Vincent? If Vincent goes out there, he can sniff him out. 
I didn't realize that Vincent was like a, a drug-sniffing dog. Sw- all dogs, you know this, Josh, all dogs can find things. I mean, Vincent is a magical dog, obviously, so I bet if they had released Vincent out into the wild, Vincent could have been very helpful. I feel like probably just as a general rule, they didn't utilize Vincent nearly enough for their missions. No, I I agree, and I think maybe it's because I don't know if they felt the dog was a nuisance, if they just felt that the dog was sort of like, uh, maybe just more like an accessory to all the other crazy crap that was going on. I mean, there's a reason as well why I think the show is sort of, I don't want to use the term disposed of Vincent, but placed him to the side with Rose and Bernard for quite some time towards the latter half of the series is because they might have realized, oh man, yeah, I don't know if a dog is uh, uh, able to really survive on an island, but yeah, I, I think this is uh, unfortunately another case of poor dismissive Michael telling Walt, no man, your dog idea is not good but I'm going to be the one to go out there. And right. Locke says, no, 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 not so fast, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Michael wants to go. He wants to join. Locke's like, no, we've got enough people. We're fine. Michael says, well, maybe I'll start my own search party. And Locke says, good idea. We're going north. You go south. <laughs> I love that. He just walks right away from him. I mean, I understand it from Locke's perspective. Locke has been on a hunt with Michael. And Michael yeah. got gored by the boar in like five seconds. So, yeah, don't take Michael on the mission where it's not about sustenance. It's about saving two people who've just been kidnapped. Now, yeah, Michael's going to get carved up like sashimi by Ethan, knowing his track record. Not to mention, you can also maybe there is some sort of like weird resentment towards, you know, we don't know exactly what's happened with Walt and Locke since Walt came to him a couple of episodes ago being like, hey, um, my dad basically disregards me. Can you actually teach me? Uh, skills I can utilize here on the island. I'm sure that Locke certainly has some opinions about Michaels, as he has opinions about basically everybody on the island. So I don't know if he just wants to keep company with Michael in general. I don't know how much he actually respects him at this point. All right. So Jack is running around. He's going to run around like Jack is going to do. And then we get a flashback. uh, And we're back in the operating room after uh, the dust has settled a little bit. The, The corpse is cooling. And Jack and Christian are going to have a conversation, and it's charged, Mike, and it includes a little bit of an accusation. Let's listen in. Sound number two. Never thought I'd see the day, Jack. You barge into my OR, you work on my patient. You didn't have to do this procedure. I don't have to do anything. Yeah, of course you don't. I chose to do this procedure. This emergency procedure, because when this girl crashed in the ER, they called me. I was right upstairs. And you should have stayed upstairs. And how did you find out? One of the nurses came to get me. Who? Oh, thank God I have you and some anonymous nurse to rescue me. She told me that your hands were shaking. My hands were not. You cut her hepatic artery. She was in a car crash, Jack. Her insides were a mess. You made a mistake. They called me. I don't care whether or not they called you. You made a mistake. Are you lecturing me? You tell me. Uh, If you were upstairs and I was in a restaurant having lunch, then why did they call me? How many drinks did you have at lunch, Dad? I want to talk about this scene, Josh, as or this storyline as, I mean, this is our introduction to Christian Shepherd aside from our series Bible entry. Because, you know, in White Rabbit, we had heard about him, certainly, and we had seen Christian with young Jack, but this is really them in action. right? And I, and I find this such an interesting choice, given how all the other Christian and Jack flashbacks go from here on out. Because we essentially see, like, 
not necessarily their big breaking point. That's going to be, I think, what, a tale of two cities when he feel he thinks that Christian's sleeping with Sarah right. and decides to like fight him in the middle of an AA meeting. Yeah, but, the season three finale or premiere rather. Yeah, yeah, but they're basically like they're at they're at blows right now. You could feel that tension simmering, like you said. We even heard it before when you know Christian tells him to call and Jack says, "No, you call it." Like they're trying to play a game of hot potato in the OR, but. All these other flashbacks that we're going to be talking about in the innumerable episodes of this podcast are a little bit more of a gentler Christian. You know, someone who's supportive of Jack, or at least encouraging of Jack in his career. What do you make of the choice for us to start, or to, you know, uh, I guess we've seen a bit of their relationship through Jack's eyes, but to really get a firsthand look of their relationship at this point in time, rather than, you know, the incident where Jack is operating on that patient for the first time and Christian tells him to count to five instead. Well, I mean, by the end of this episode, Jack is going to, you know, he's going to narc on Christian, right? Like he's going to amend his statement. He's going to say my dad was drunk when he did the procedure and that's why the the woman died. Um, And if not for his testimony, Christian gets away with it. If not for you pesky kids, uh, you know, Jack is going to sell his dad out uh, and do the right thing, mind you, obviously, a very hard thing, uh, but the right thing. Um, and in so doing, he's going to send Christian into the tailspin uh, that leads him to Australia, where he drinks himself to death. Um, and I mean, not that Christian isn't tailspinning at this point anyway. Uh, clearly, he is in, a, in in some measure of free fall, and he's ultimately going to admit to Sawyer, of all people, uh, in that aforementioned bar scene, which we'll get later on in season one, um, that he's proud of his son for what he's done here. So I think to, to start here, it's important because it it continues the themes of like the difficult relationship between Jack and Christian. It clarifies why Christian uh, was in such a state that Jack um, had to like pursue him to Australia. So it helps clarify the flashbacks of White Rabbit. And then I think it leaves us in a place to recontextualize him with the additional information that we're going to get from him down the line. I think you start from this really difficult place with him that, uh, as he's going to say to Jack, uh, you, you mold the soft metal, right? Like, I think that that's sort of where we start with Christian, where he's just like this hot metal that seems like it's just going to burn. Yeah, he is. It's just going to burn you uh, and, and you know, cause you uh, nothing but distress and pain. And the further on we get with him, there are still elements of that. But I think that there's just new colorations to him as well. Um, so I like where we start with him. So that's interesting because I would almost say the converse in terms of that analogy in that we we see this hardened piece of metal. We see a scalpel that has been carved through so many organs and so many arteries at this point that has just been completely almost dulled to the world. And when we see now through the previous flashbacks, or I guess the future flashback from a chronological perspective, is how that metal was shaped. How maybe it was a little softer, but due to his own circumstances, his own battle with alcoholism, his own relationship with his son, the dealings he had with in Australia, that's going to cause him to become the the rigid person that he is. And this also connects so interestingly to White Rabbit because, I mean, when you look at Christian's reaction in particular to this scene, it pairs so nicely with his lecture to Jack in the study that you just don't have what it takes. Especially when you hear Christian's reaction of, are you lecturing me? And you can imagine how someone like Christian Shepard and what he thinks how he regards, you know, Jack possibly being too soft, speaking of textures, for this part, 
to to see how emasculated he probably feels as a father to have his son blame him for a mistake, especially considering his own prestigious standing in St. Sebastian, must be a lot for him to handle. And so I can completely understand how he does lash out here, even though, I mean, I would say this is probably going to be like the worst Christian episode ever in terms of behavior. Uh, so nowhere to go but up from here. But you could understand, especially considering how he is really in the dregs at this point with his drinking, why this conversation is fueled by more than just alcohol. Well, I mean, the the two for the road stuff with him and Anna Lucia is pretty pretty dark as well. I'm trying to think of some of the future Christian sightings of who we know for sure to be Christian rather than than Monster Man. Some of the Monster Man Christian Shepherd appearances are pretty dark. Um, but off the top of my head, I think you're probably right. Uh, let's go back to the island. On the island, Locke is going to catch up with Jack. It's a like, good thing you're running in circles. Not much of a search grid, but we were able to find you. Uh, Jack says, yeah, I haven't found anything. Uh, so that's no good. Uh, Locke wants Jack to go back to the caves. Jack does not want to go back to the caves. Locke says, this isn't on you. This is my fault. I was hanging out with Ethan. I never sensed anything off. Uh, and Locke is supposed to be a good judge of character. Right, Mike? I mean, uh, he, clearly, uh, he clearly misjudged Ethan. I don't know. He picked the wrong thing from Richard Alpert as a kid, and I feel like that just sent him for life. Yeah. Uh, Locke says, whatever I know about tracking, Ethan knows more. Uh, and we can't lose the only trained physician on the island. So go back to the caves. Be the doctor. I'm going to be the hunter. And Jack says, now, staying. And Locke's like, oh, fine. Yeah, and I give Locke all the power in the world, considering that he has the propensity to just knock people out. He could have very easily done that with Jack here, but I guess he wants to be a bit more in the shadows at this point. So he's he has a lot of patience at this point because to take on Jack, he's going to take on Boone later as a trusty ward. So Locke is recruiting a lot of people this episode to his cause. Yeah, I think like in White Rabbit, Locke and Jack were able to get on the same page and they'd been mostly on the same page here. And this is like sort of their first real conflict. Uh, this is like their first moment where um, their, uh, their, their leadership styles are intermingling in a way that doesn't coexist easily. Uh, where it's, you know, Locke has his department and Jack has his department and Locke views Jack as getting involved in his departmental affairs. Uh, and this is not okay as far as Locke is concerned. It's like, I don't tell you how to doctor people. You don't tell me how to hunt. Uh, and so he doesn't like this. Um, could, you, could you imagine if Locke did lecture Jack of like, oh, I see you're uh, dressing Saeed's leg. You know, if you run some leaves on right. it, it's going to tan up real nice. You know? So he's never doing stuff like that, or at least he hasn't yet. So this is the first, like, and I, I think that Locke had a lot of respect for Jack. Go be the leader. You know, a leader can't lead until he knows what he's what he's after. Back in White Rabbit, uh, and he really guides Jack towards, um, you know, some measure of clarity. Uh, so he he's clearly somebody who, even at this point, has a lot of respect for Jack. Um, but I think that this is this is a this is a moment where these two men are showing each other why they are not necessarily the most compatible people on the planet. Um, meanwhile, Michael is just complaining to her. He's like, why? Why can't I go on the hunt? So stupid. Sick of being treated like a second-class citizen around here because Mount Baldy can hunt a boar. Yeah, I think that, uh, I, do we have one for the Michael nickname counter now? Mount Baldy? A little, uh, unoriginal, but Michael's creative in different ways, so uh, I can sympathize with him. Mount Baldy? Is he, is he, like, again, a never-ending story, uh, reference? Is he calling him, like, the rock face? From the never-ending mm. story? These were such big hands that I used to carve up the boar. Yeah. Uh, but Walt's going to go straight to bat for John Locke. He's like, shut up, Dad. 
John Locke is the man. He brought knives. He can track. He can hunt. It's up to me. I'd listen to him. And yeah, my, I'm going to call him Brian now. Yeah, he's my he's my real father. Uh, and Michael says, uh, well, I might not be a warrior, but I am going south. Indeed you are, Michael Dawson. Though you'll hang out in the, you know, the mid-tier for a bit, and then you'll be able to go south finally once Mr. Friendly gives you the permission. Well, he's already south in the points department. Uh, oh, yeah, no, he's going further south then. And apparently... There was, apparently he does actually go south. Apparently he does take like five people with him. It was just not included in the script, but I can only imagine, because you got to imagine that no matter what they're doing, Michael's going to try to bring it back to Locke and how he feels like Locke is undervaluing him and undermining him the entire time. Yeah. Uh, Rich, mark this down. Uh, Rodney and Billy Wallace are definitely part of that five-person search party with Michael. I don't, I don't know if Michael's making it out of that expedition, if that's the case. Well, we got to stick with the cannon, so Michael's got to make it. All right, on the hunt, uh, Locke is saying, all right, let's mark progress uh, with these red shirt scraps. We'll tie them to the trees, uh, and Boone is going to take on marker detail. Uh, and so he starts the process of uh, marking up some trees. They've been going for a little while here, and Locke says, all right, got to take a break, got to think. Uh, and Jack's like, a break? We just got started. It's like 4 o'clock. He says it's 4.25. And yeah, we're taking a break. Uh, Jack does not like it. And Kate uh, goes off with Jack and says, would you kill you to give him a little bit of space? Jack says, it might. Oh, God. Kate says, stop that. Jack says, what? She goes, that. Which is hilarious. Uh, Kate tolerating Jack's bullshit in this episode. Uh, if, we, if we had a thousand points to give out, I would give them to her for that. <laughs> Jack's yeah, insufferable here. <laughs> she has the patience of a saint. And yeah, we haven't gotten to the worst of it yet. But Jack is acting like such a little petulant child of like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Have we found him yet? He feels bad. He blames himself. He says, I didn't believe her. I told her to take sleeping pills. Uh, she seemed out of it. I thought it was the pregnancy. I thought it was amping up her stress. I didn't believe her. And so he's feeling very remorseful. Uh, but so. Uh, but so, so here's the thing, though. I mean, if we're looking at the dominoes that led to this happening, how much do we blame Jack here from a logistical perspective? I mean, because the thing is, Ethan already knew that Hurley was onto him of him not being in the manifest. Could it be in the realm of possibilities that even if Claire was not driven away by Jack to leave the caves, that he still would have kidnapped her at any point in time, and therefore Jack isn't necessarily, I wouldn't say he's not completely at fault, but he shouldn't at least be blaming himself for saying, I offered her sedatives and drove her away from the camp. Yeah, but I think that the thing that happens here is uh, Jack driving Claire away from camp gets her exposed, gets her out in the open where she is having the crisis, gets Charlie to go running back to the caves, encounters Ethan. Um, and Ethan is spooked and realizes that now is the time to do something, also knows that his cover is blown at this point. So maybe Ethan is going to try and make a move at some point soon, uh, but he's going to have a hard time getting Claire out of the caves with everybody around. So if not for the, that, the fact that Jack disbelieves Claire, Claire doesn't leave and that leaves her out in the open and gives Ethan the opening. Uh, see, I think we can blame Jack a little bit for this. I think it's not unfair for Jack to feel kind of shitty about everything. Right, but you could also blame, like, Charlie, for example, for happening to run into Ethan as the one person he didn't need to encounter on the path and not going to get Jack. You know, I, there are multiple people to blame here, and I can understand why this is the motivator. I just feel like 
admittedly, it's a pretty shitty motivator for some of the ways he's behaving, this scene included. Yeah. Um, so they're they're still going around, and Boone and Locke, they find, like, Charlie's little finger sleeve thingies, the little stickers, whatever the heck yeah, they we are. Yeah, have, we, we haven't talked about that since uh, he started carving those on in Pilot Part 2, The Fate Into Late. What do you make of them as, as a fashion choice? Uh, were you liking what Charlie was doing there with the fingerlets? I think I like it better than, like, the red frosted tips and the mustache from his drive shaft days, for sure. I mean, who's to say that he wasn't, uh, you know, doing those with drive shaft? I mean, drive shaft is 10 letters. He could have done one on each finger and the thumb. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. It's true. Uh, no, I like them. I think they're cool. You know, if you're trying to, like, shake it up out there, you don't have a ton to work with. You got a Sharpie. You've got some uh, some some duct tape. Uh, why not? Do you think he should have done two hands, though? Is the asymmetry something that's um, a bit... Is it stylistic or is it the opposite? I think it can be stylistic if uh, if done right. Like I think that like the the accessory on one arm and the other arm being bare, I think can be a can be a cool look uh, if you if I, you rock it appropriately. I'm just sad that we got rid of these. Uh, I mean, glad that Charlie was able to Hansel and Gretel himself and leave a trail. But, I like, know if he was really macking it with Claire, he could have changed it to date. Ooh, and, and if they got really very serious, it could have been mate exactly and then uh you know he could have made a joke if you know when she was uh very pregnant he could have put late once again with a question uh, mark at the end of it yeah they could have broken up and he would have put on hate because he was mad at claire yeah exactly See, and then was- maybe he gets into a showmance with kate <laughs> is that like when you get like a tattoo overdone of like your old mate yes. and oh, and try to like cover it with someone else's name like i think angelina jolie and billy bob thornton did It'd yeah. be very easy for Charlie to do, so I think his options would be a bit more limited than even he did, had at this point. He hears about the guy from the tail section who got thrown into the pit and uh, mistaken as another and feels really bad for what happened to him, and so he honors him by changing it to Nate. That guy's name was Nathan. Uh, I, I only wish that the news that Charlie received in the looking glass was about the sonar fences, so instead of writing on his hand and showing it to Desmond, he could have just written gate and showed <laughs> it to him on his little fingerlets. Oh, God. All right. Well, if you would like to rate our uh, <laughs> our Charlie uh, uh, hand gesture suggestions, I don't know. Uh, but he had to work with something here. Uh, he must have figured out that the invisible breadcrumbs he was leaving uh, weren't going to work yeah. because he's the only one who can see the food that he has in his supply. Uh, so that's not really going to work as far as the Hansel and Gretling. So he's working with what he's got, and it's working out pretty well. Uh, and they, they find a couple more of these stickers, and it leads to a fork in the road. And there's two different possible paths. And Jack believes that Charlie is leaving things to follow, but Kate suggests maybe Ethan is setting up a dummy trail. Um, and by the fact that she's like talking about tracking the way she is, like people are starting to be like, oh, Kate. You're pretty good at this. How did you know how to do any of this stuff? She's like, ah, we'll talk about that another time, please. Not right now. Um, uh, I, well, I'll speak about it when I talk about what I did. Yes. Uh, but since we've got two trails and two trackers, let's split up. And so we pair off Jack and Kate going down one path and Boone and Locke going down the other. And I'm sure that Locke and Jack are both thrilled to have nothing to do with each other for the rest of the episode. Only imagine, like, the sliding doors of it all, what it would have looked like if, uh, you know, if Kate had gone with Locke and Boone had gone with Jack. I know that that would be putting the two trackers together, but 
We're going to be talking about how Boone unfortunately tied his fate to John Locke here and happening to discovering the hatch. You know, if Kate was the one in his place, it'd be very interesting to see what would happen. Things are very different in the world where it's Kate with Locke uh, who goes and finds the hatch. Because uh, Kate, like, immediately tells Jack. Jack finds out about the hatch right away. We do not get whatever the case may be. We blow up the hatch a lot earlier than we blow up the hatch in season one. Boone probably doesn't die. At least he doesn't die the way that he has to die here because Locke doesn't have to do this like clandestine oh, you, operation of finding out You know out what the it hatches. is? Boone absolutely blows up at the Black Rock. <laughs> yeah, he gets arsed. Because <laughs> Boone is Boone. Is like the th- one thing we know about Boone, he is so keen on volunteering. He's ready what to that, go. He's like, yeah, yeah well, I'll, I'll blow me up. I'm good to go. Whether that means like socially, like whenever a mission's at hand, Boone's like, great, I'm going to do it. No matter what it is, I'm going to do it. So you would bet he's like, great, I'll grab three handfuls of dynamite and he'll just carelessly blow himself yeah. up as a result. Yeah, he subscribes to the you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So he's just taking 100% of the shots. Eventually, that was going to kill him uh, for sure. Uh, fun to think about, though, uh, what happens if other people are in that Boone spot uh with lock uh maybe we can we can keep thinking about that along the way um but first let's go and check in on i know that this is one of your favorite scenes from the episode uh we're we're gonna leave the hunting party we're gonna check in with walt who does like a little bit of a world tour throughout this episode uh and he's gonna he's gonna get i think this is our first interaction between walt and sawyer certainly our first really meaningful one and it's so funny that it's definitely worth listening in on so sound number three walt and sawyer it's so good you got taken by what? Charlie and Claire. I think Ethan took them. Ethan took them, huh? Yeah. <clears throat> took them why? And who the hell's Ethan? I don't know. He wasn't on the listing, the manifest. You ever think he might have lied about his name? It's stupid to lie about your name. All righty, Tattoo. Where do you think Ethan came from? Maybe he was already on the island before we were. Got yourself one hell of an imagination, kid. There could be lots of other people on the island. So a tribe of evil natives planted a ringer in the camp to kidnap a pregnant girl and a reject from VH1 has-beens. Yeah, fiendishly clever. And why am I getting the evening news from a six-year-old? I'm ten. Okay. Then it must be true. Can't wait for a decade from now, Josh, when I'll finally be able to take the news from my son. Until then, fake news from Asher Bloom. Fake news from Asher Bloom. I love that. Why am I getting my news from a six-year-old? I'm ten. Okay, then it must be true. (laughs) This this is such like a random scene, but I love this character pairing because Walt is equal parts like wholesome, but also pretty sassy at the same time. Like he's given some guff. To Sawyer, unintentionally so, with the it's stupid to lie about your name, unless Walt knows more than we're putting on. Also, Walt, I will say, uh, I will call you out a bit on your fake news. Uh, Technically, Sawyer will be on the island before Ethan was born, just from a chronological perspective. I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Yeah, good point. Good point. But I do love Sawyer essentially outlining literally what's going on and then completely decrying the notion afterwards. It's so funny. All right, but uh, Walt's going to say to him, look, look, if you don't believe me, ask Saeed. Saeed said we're not alone. And Sawyer goes, oh, Saeed's back, huh? <laughs> great. Great. Cool. Oh, good. <laughs> Let's look into that. Uh, so he's going to look into that. Meanwhile, we go back to the hunting party uh, and Locke and Boone, who are now off on their own. And Boone... Really uh, calling his shot 
on what's going to happen to himself. Uh, maybe just a little bit off on timing, uh, but he's basically going to nail uh, exactly what's coming his way. And in fact, we should listen in on that as well. Sound number four of this conversation between Locke and Boone. Red shirt. Huh? Red shirt. Ever watch Star Trek? <sighs> Not really. The crew guys? That would go down to the planet with the main guys? The captain and the guy with the pointy ears? They always wore red shirts. And they always got killed. Yeah? Yeah. Sounds like a piss poor captain. What do you do in the real world, Mr. Locke? It's John. John? Why don't you guess? Well, you're either a taxidermist or a hitman. <laughs> I was a regional collection supervisor for a box company. A box company? And they made boxes. There's a great look on Terry O'Quinn's face, too, when after Boone says, a box company? And Locke goes, uh, yeah. Oh, he's like kind of like clicking his cheek. He's like, yeah, uh, they made boxes. <laughs> yeah, I'm I loving sassy Locke this episode of like, yeah. box company, yeah, you know, the ones that make boxes. But Josh. Well, you know what's great, what, though, Mike? I, like, I feel like Locke is just like breathing easier because Jack isn't here. So like he's like yeah. getting a moment to appreciate Boone. This is a kid who's clearly a lot less intense than Ethan was. Locke, who's already already feeling pretty shitty about the fact that he's just been hunting with Ethan for the past week or whatever. Uh, and Ethan probably with like a lot of questions about like, uh, hey, so uh, you ever get like shot on this island by me before? And Locke's like, what? Uh, I was like, yeah, that's don't worry, don't worry about it. It's a weird question. Yeah, I, let me fill yeah. you out, uh, Mister Locke. What are your feelings on stealing babies? Yeah, what, what do you think about that? Killing your parents? You have any thoughts about? And Locke's like, well, speaking of that, let me tell you about my father. Uh, so here's the thing, Josh. I know what you mentioned before, and a lot of people have made mention to it, but let me put on my little uh, trekker uh, uniform for a hot second, because technically speaking, Boone is not a red shirt. Okay. Sorry. So, well, no, 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 no. I, I just, because I, it's understandable, right? And I think it's a really fun poke of the fact that, like, hey, some supplemental characters who go down on away missions with the Captain and Spock, yeah, they often did get killed. But I feel like, I feel like red shirts back in the original series were more so, like, they were introduced for literally one episode. Got it. Okay. You okay. know, like, I feel like the biggest ep- example of a red shirt is Arst. Like, he was in, what, three episodes, and then he promptly gets blown up. Boone, I would feel like it's like if they if they killed Chekhov off in the original series. That's what I feel like Boone would be more so equivalent to. That is semantics. I am totally channeling Log <laughs> right now. But it's I like, felt it's like I, a, it's like a Tasha Yar, right? Like yeah, it's like exactly. you're killing a series regular off. They're dying in the first season, Tasha and then Yar a hologram the season, pops right? up of Boone to talk to everybody about how much he loves them, uh, though. It's so interesting, you know, I know uh, Locke is trying to play it off, like, oh, I don't know Star Trek, but if you know Terry O'Quinn, Josh, he has a bit of a history 
when it comes to Star Trek himself. Yes, and this is actually, uh, we're, we're sneaking in. Another is sneaking in to the main section here. We're going to borrow this from the other section because we may, we may as well since we're talking about it right now. Um, that uh, Ben Martell notes that this whole Star Trek conversation, in addition to maybe setting up the fact that Boone is going to, to go the way of the red shirts, at least, if not be one himself, uh, Ben Martell notes that this is also almost certainly a direct reference to the fact that Terry O'Quinn appeared on Star Trek The Next Generation in Season 7, Episode 12, The Pegasus. O'Quinn plays an admiral whose crew mutinies against him because of his poor decision-making. And here, Boone essentially is going to end up dying. Is it because Locke is a piss-poor captain? Uh, I did not know that uh, T.O.Q. was part of TNG lore. It's news to me. I guess it makes sense. You can see it. Yeah, he appeared in, I think, like one of the last like ten episodes of the series. And not to get too much into spoilers, but basically, uh, he's he's a former captain. He was actually uh, Commander Riker's former captain, Commander Riker's first captain, and he gets brought back aboard for like one mission that takes him into this uh, deep space quadrant, where it turns out that he had sort of gone on this mad mission, perfecting technology. Uh, that nobody knew about that was actually against the law, and he was fruitlessly pursuing it and actually doomed his ship in the process, which, which caused his crew to mutiny him. Uh, but because he's an admiral this time, the crew of the Enterprise is reticent to, you know, uh, overthrow him once again. Though once they find out that, oh man, yes, he's crazy and he's doing a bunch of illegal stuff, they do overthrow him once more. They're able to escape once they figure out what uh, he was working on, which is some sort of like cloaking technology to evade the Romulans. Then he's promptly arrested and probably thrown in some sort of version of a space brig. Wow. Amazing. Uh, yeah, piss poor captain indeed. Um, Mike, I got I to gotta call BS on a couple of things with the Star Trek stuff. Uh, you, you poo-poo the red shirt. Um, I poo-poo the idea that Boone knows what a red shirt is but doesn't know the name of the captain and the yeah. quote-unquote guy with the pointy ears. Don't, Completely agree. You yeah, don't, is, don't is the too worst cool, tr- you idiot. If you're going to out yourself as a Star Trek <laughs> fan, just say Kirk and Spock, you dork. Yeah, Boone is it. the worst Trek casual ever. Because I don't know, I don't know, Josh. I don't know if it's him playing cool. I think it's him legitimately, like, like totally casual. But he, for some reason, remembers the term red shirt. How does I bet he there's know like, red shirt, but he doesn't know who Spock is? I don't know. It's impossible. That's not possible. You don't know what a red shirt is, but you don't know who Spock is. I I don't know, but I wonder if, like, maybe he has, like, a a, a hip friend who tells him all about, like, what the concept of a red shirt is, and that really got stuck in his head. But for some reason, the name Kirk or Spock just completely escaped his brain like an escape pod at terminal velocity. But, yeah, not really showing his cards that well with being, like, I know what a red shirt is. You know, it's that thing that goes down with the captain and pointy man with Stop. bad fingers. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. With bad fingers. Unbelievable. I just, it's unbelievable. I think that he's just big timing Locke. It's like he's trying to like act cool. Like he's just like throwing out like uh, useless trivia. It's not like I watched every single episode of Star Trek. Uh, but he probably did. Also, Locke has definitely seen Star Trek. Absolutely knows everything that Boone is talking about, and it's just like trying not to embarrass Boone right now. So, uh, so this is essentially two guys circling each other, much like Jack in the crops, trying to like uh, not call the other one out as not being cool. You actually bring up, I, I could see, I'm I'm vying, ve- uh, veering more towards your area though, because we I noticed that Boone brings up red shirt, and then Boone says, "You ever watch Star Trek?" And Locke says, "Not really." And I could see Boone changing his tact 
tactic to become purposely vague from then being like, oh my god, he doesn't watch it. Okay, let me just dumb it down a little bit. This is not this is not a convention boon. Make sure you don't get into too much about the tribbles and about you know the 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 wrestling with Harry the mud. The, yeah, exactly. Don't get in too much into the muds android women because there's something. There's definitely not that kind of weird stuff going on on this island. Definitely not. Uh, so let's just you know bring it down to a level one. Bring up their basic characteristics and let's see if he follows it. All right. So elsewhere, Jack and Kate, uh, they are on an away mission of their own. Jack's going too fast. He's just like going way too fast for Kate. This is like the other day in New York when Emily Fox and I were storming down the street and she was going way too fast. She would not slow down at all. Emily, come on. I'm just trying to catch my breath back here. I can't go as fast as you. And that's what Kate is saying to Jack. Uh, you got to slow down. I can't do this. Uh, and Jack's like, you're being terrible, Kate. You're the worst. Just some honesty for a minute. How do you know how to track? Oh my god, there's a time and a place, Jack! Yeah. And you also You had you back. had the time yeah. and a place. You had to bull Rasa! Yeah. Well, what happened to you that? Had the shot. You had the shot. And Kate uh tells him that uh my dad was in the army. We used to go hiking together, spend eight hours tracking deer once. Being in the woods was like his religion. That was real. Anything you wanna share, Jack? Oh yeah, turn that finger back onto him. Kate clapping back at Jack. Well earned. Yeah, I, I just still, like, we've seen this a couple times as well, and I understand that Jack is at the end of his rope, so he has a propensity. Uh, that's Charlie. To, yeah, that's true. He's at the end of a very different type of rope. But, like, why do you bring this up now, Jack? This is neither the time nor the place for you to bring up the, well, you did something shady, but I wouldn't let you say it, but I'm going to hold that over your head. Yeah. I don't know. It's just whatever. If, J- if not for the f- Jack's going to be very useful in the end here. We're giving him a hard time now. But right. Gonna- but I would also say that I am of the argument most of the time that the end doesn't justify the means. And I feel like I, I can't necessarily wipe away Jack's behavior specifically towards Kate with a- an act of bravery he's able to do at the end here. Listen, he's going to he's going to save Charlie's life. So may- maybe we need to give Jack some slack, but uh, maybe not just yet. We've still Charlie didn't get any slack. Yeah. He got the opposite of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's a tough deal. All right, so no slack for Jack quite yet, but a flashback for Jack. Indeed, as we go back to the hospital, Jack is summoned into Christian's office, and Dad wants Son to sign off on the truth. Not Sun Quan, Son Jack. Uh, and despite Jack's heroic efforts, the patient succumbed to injuries. That's the official company line that Christian wants Jack to sign off on. And Jack is still pissed off about it. Uh, and Chris says, look, you're a surgeon of record. When she died, accidents happen all the time. That's the truth. If you contradict the report, if you bring up alcohol, that's all that's going to matter. They'll strip me of my license. Jack's like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, and that causes Christian to shift gears a little bit, Mike. Uh, and in fact, let us listen in to the gear shift. I know I have been hard on you, but that is how you make a soft metal into steel. That is why you are the most gifted young surgeon in this city. I mean, this, this is a career that is all about the greater good. I've had to sacrifice certain aspects of my relationship with you so that hundreds and thousands of patients will live. 
because of your extraordinary skills. And now it's a long, long time coming. What happened yesterday, I promise you, will never happen again. And after what I've given, this is not just about my career, Jack. I, I mean, as I mentioned before, this is our first glance of really Christian Shepard. We've heard about him through Jack's eyes. We've seen him in the form of the smoke monster. But oh, I salivate over how malevolent John Terry is in this monologue. He's so manipulative. He is. R- right down to the hand touch on the shoulder, which even before it's seeing like he, it. Be- uh, it's like he listened to your most recent B&B podcast. Got some good advice about how to parent. Yeah, exactly. He knows like when to lie and say like, "Oh, it's a big day for you tomorrow. Yeah. Big surgery." When to you're say in, you're special? Yeah, yeah, you're in big trouble if you don't if you turn me in. But I mean, down to like <laughs> I heard put- Scott Farkas signed off on this statement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you want to be like Scott Farkas? Uh, but I mean, down to like him putting his hand on his shoulder, and I love the low note that hums throughout. Like even before seeing it being echoed later on in the flashbacks, you see how impersonal. It is. And Matthew Fox does such a great job in these flashbacks in particular of just looking so conflicted because Christian is saying all the right things in this moment. He's running the long con on his son for a bit by really running this, hitting his emotions of like, hey, you don't want to do this to me. Look at how much I had to sacrifice, but it was all for the greater good, not the episode that's going to be talked about in about 10 weeks on Down the Hatch. Right. And I just love how it ends with, this is not just about my career, Jack. It's about my life. And we thought that Margot was exaggerating when she told Jack of like, you ruined his life. But no, he sets up the stakes right here, right now, so that when Jack does do this thing, he knows exactly what the circumstances were. Yeah, but I mean... uh Christian got himself here, right? This is, yeah. and, and I, I feel like a level of empathy for, for Christian in this moment where, you know, this is like the, this is the, you know, desperation's a stinky cologne, uh, and he's wearing it, you know, and it's booze soaked. Uh, you know, this is, this, these are the, this is, these are the desperate cries for, um, like protection from an alcoholic who knows that he has a problem and knows that his problem has just caused, uh, a catastrophe. Um, and rather than face the music uh, over something that, you know, really he caused, uh, he's he's pleading with his son to cover it up. And he's going to learn nothing from a cover up. You know, he can swear like nothing like this will ever happen again. But who's to say that nothing like this is ever going to happen again? Um, so it's it's really complicated. Uh, you know, he's in the throes of a sickness himself, Christian, uh, you know, and he's he's a very sad man. In this moment, he's manipulative, yes, but he's also very sad. Uh, it's heartbreaking. It's a great scene. Uh, it, you know, you throw in the fact that like this would be complicated if it was a mentor, um, you know, with his mentee talking in this scene. But the fact that they're also father and son, that you've got that uh, parental relationship between the two of them, that for Jack, this is God, right? Like Christian is the king of the mountain uh, and has been his entire life. 
uh, and he's now faced with the possibility of knocking him off the mountain um, and then realizing what it would mean to do that uh, and the, the, the harm he would cause by doing that. And he can't bring himself to do it, at least not yet. Uh, it's very charged. It's really, really powerful. It's really, really yeah. great. Brilliant performances I, by both Matthew Fox and John Terry here. And I cut it out at the end here, but after Jack sort of begrudgingly ends up signing the paper, you have Christian just mutter, thank you, son. And that choice of the word son, I feel like, is such an operative word because, again, it's him really digging in that relationship of like, yes, you're my son, and that's why you had to do this because I'm your father. Like you said, it's so infinitely complicated by the fact that they are – you know, they are boss and subordinate. They're also father and son. They're also mentor and mentee. So it's really tough for Jack to cut those ties because it's like disarming a bomb. You know, which one do you cut so much so that you don't interrupt the other wires and promptly get yourself and Boone blown up? Yeah, I believe the correct move based on season six is you do not disarm the bomb. You don't cut the wire Cutting the wire only accelerates the counter yeah. and blows up the submarine. Yeah, don't um, don't claim that it was like a, a big, you know, fake job. This is just Christian posturing and there was no actual bomb because that's how you end up killing three people. All right. So Sawyer is going to show up to one of the people who will eventually be blown up uh, by the bomb on the submarine and really indeed by Sawyer's hand by accident. Uh, Sawyer's going to show up to Saeed. Saeed's recovering from his leg injury. Sawyer rolls up with a terrible line. I don't know if you, this is his quote. I don't know if you, ha, if you Islams have a concept of karma, but I have a feeling Allah just served you up a heaping platter of cosmic payback. Sawyer, you were, uh, had, you were gaining points. You what were so happened? close. You were so close. Uh, he says that a less magnanimous guy than me would beat on you without fear of reprisal right now. And Syed's like, please do. Please do. I left this camp out of shame. I was very upset about what I did to you. If you want to beat me up right now, you're well within your rights and I will accept it. Uh, instead, Sawyer very calmly sits across from him and these two people have a conversation that's basically a previously on uh, where Syed yeah. says, I was taken prisoner by the French woman. There's others on this island. I don't know if I, if I believe her or not, but I did hear whispers in the jungle. In case you missed solitary, that's what happened in the episode. Uh, and so I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, by the way, tide's coming up the beach. Plane hole's almost in the water. And I kept your signal fire burning. And he leaves without touching a hair on Saeed's head. And if not for the racist entrance, I'd be tempted to give Sawyer an MVP point for the way that he handles things with his first interaction with Saeed post-torturing. The racism definitely negates the MVP point that I would have given him. Uh, but I feel like Sawyer has like a very mature, reasonable interaction with Saeed here, given everything that has gone between them, other than that very big asterisk. Yeah, I really love this scene. Obviously, uh, possible cancellation criteria for Sawyer aside, just because, like you said... It's a relationship that has been mired in controversy and complications since the pilot when they're hurling invectives at one another. Why do you think Sawyer keeps the signal fire ablaze? Because, I mean, he hasn't done that on screen. We haven't necessarily seen when that happens. Uh, you know, this goes against Kate's suppositions about Sawyer, how he doesn't necessarily need to leave the island because he doesn't have anybody back home. Do we just think this is something... Him really listening to Hurley's ideas of like, hey, you could use some points. Do we think this is something where he legitimately does want to get off the island and decides to support Saeed's idea no matter how stabby he may have been previously? 
he wants to get off the island for sure. I mean, he's going to get on the raft at the end of the season. Uh, so that's definitely a piece of it. That's why he's on the beach still. He wants to be there when the when the plane comes. Um, so him feeding the signal fire is very much in his own self-interest. Um, I doubt that he'd be doing it if not for the fact that the person who was doing it is now gone and probably nobody is really there by de facto picking up the slack uh, from Saeed. Uh, and so Sawyer leaves it to himself. He's like, all right, if no one's going to keep the signal fire going, I got to do it. Uh, that's like the, the mercenary interpretation. The more charitable interpretation is we know Sawyer better than we know him now, right? Like if you've watched mm-hmm. the rest of Lost and you know that Sawyer is a hero at heart. Uh, you know that Sawyer is a good person in the, in the disguise of a really bad person, or at least he has done bad things but at his heart, he's not such a terrible guy. Uh, he has the potential to be a very good guy. Um, so for him to to be the person who's keeping the signal fire going in light of Saeed being gone um, makes some sense to me in that framework. But I think at this mo- point in time, this moment in time where he is right this second, I do tend to believe that it is mostly a self-interested attempt to keep the signal fire going so he can get off of this rock. Um, yeah. Sawyer's really like the anti-Boone, where Boone's like, great, everyone's doing something, I want in. And Sawyer's like, okay, nobody's doing this thing, I guess I'm doing it then. Yeah. It's surprising that Boone wasn't keeping the signal fire going. Well, listen, he he has to put out a bunch of fires at once, pun unintended. He he can't be everywhere, Josh. He really is a man of of many hobbies. Plus, he decided he was going to move to the caves, much to Shannon's chagrin. Um, and I think he probably he said, okay, who's more likely to know about Star Trek, John Locke or Sawyer? I think <laughs> yeah. he assumed incorrectly. I think so, too. Uh, all right. Well, let's check in with another unlikely pair. Again, Walt doing the world tour. Uh, he's going to go square off against Hurley in a game of backgammon. Uh, also, we we kind of glossed over the fact that Hurley had this amazing line once uh, Michael walked away from Walt. Uh, and said, I may not be a warrior, but I'm going south. And Hurley says, back home, I'm known as something of a warrior myself. Uh, which I remember at the time being like, what does that mean? What kind yeah, of I mean, warrior is Hurley? Yeah, I mean, and I think they were purposely doing this, right? Throwing and dropping in some clues. You know, last week we had, oh, Hurley's not even my real name. And we didn't talk about, you know, he didn't mention why he got the nickname. Here we have that he's a warrior. Granted, what we know about Hurley, I'm still not sure why he considers himself a warrior either. A, he's a big LARPer, or B, with his lottery winnings, he bought, like, a costume from the original set of the Warriors. That is the only two reasons I could see him calling himself a warrior. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, there's there may be some serious Bible reasons to get into it, that, but that's for a different episode. Let's get to, to Walt and Hurley playing backgammon with each other. Yet again, such a great scene that it is best to listen to rather than hear us uh, relitigate it. So sound number six. Crap. Your blots can't get in. Yeah, I know my blots can't get in. My roll. Yahoo. I need a 4 3. Do would you please roll? Yes. No! Your turn. It's okay. I wasn't very good when I first started playing either. I didn't just start playing. I took 17th in a tournament once. 17 is not very good. No, 17th is very good. Come on, double six, double six. Yes! Oh, you got to be kidding me. 
I'm lucky. No one is that lucky. My dad said I was the luckiest person he ever knew. Really? Not Michael. Brian, my other dad. Yeah. Um. Yes! Yes! Come on, one more game. Double or nothing. I can't. I got a meeting. A meeting? Yeah, a meeting. You owe me $20,000! You'll get it. Josh, which is a more lame Hurley excuse? I have a meeting or, hey, I'm going to talk to you randomly because I don't want to talk to John Locke. Uh, I think having a meeting is probably weirder. You're not really taking meetings on the island. At least no, not like know. appointments. He, he was by the end of like, I'm going to take a meeting with uh, Richard Alpert's dead lover. Right, right, right. Yeah, I have an appointment with that lady, that ghost lady in the jungle. Uh, so funny. Yeah, he'll, he'll he's got he's good for the twenty k twenty k chump change for Hugh so, Reyes. I mean, does he get it? I mean, is it more so a thing of like a quid pro quo? Like, hey, instead of you know giving a man a fish, I'm going to teach a man to fish by bringing him onto the island to work for me. Yeah, you know what? Actually, in the season four premiere, Walt comes and visits Hurley in the uh, in the mental asylum. In the right. mental institution, uh, and Walt, uh, you know, is going to claim to be there because he wants like the update on his dad and everything. Uh, but do you think, like, much like how Christian is too embarrassed to ask Sawyer for the forged document uh, to become a doctor again, which is obviously a fake lost storyline? Please don't be too confused. Do you think that Walt is going to show up and be like, "I meant to ask for the twenty thousand dollars, but it's just too uncomfortable"? Yeah, I mean, I would pretty feel pretty bad walking into a mental institution and being like, "Hey, I hope you're doing well. Hope the sanity is coping." By the way, you owe me some money. You owe me twenty thousand dollars from when I beat you in backgammon on the island we were living on. Can I? I, I listen. That? I need it. I need to buy new clothes because I keep growing an inch like every minute. <laughs> it's getting really odd, and I think I'm about to burst through the ceiling. So if you could help, that would be great. Uh, uh, Josh, is is 17th in a tournament good? I don't know. As I've mentioned, I don't know much about backgammon, um, so I, I'm not entirely sure. If that's good or bad, I mean, I guess if if, if the I guess it depends on the number of entrants, right? If it's like the same number as like the World Series of Poker, that's amazing. That's like yeah. pro poker levels of finishing. You're definitely in the money. If it's like out of thirty two or even twenty, not very good. If it's out of sixteen, it's terrible. Yeah, if it's out of sixteen, then Hurley's the Wanda Shirk of the of the, the backgammon. <laughs> Could you imagine? A reminder, send us our your Lindelofs. We've got a Wombat hat, Wombat Station hat waiting for you. All right, let's move on from this. Let's go back to Locke and Boone. Some more information sharing occurring between Locke and Boone. Boone is going to say, I, I run a wedding business. Uh, uh, I think you said it wrong. Oh, yeah? How's it supposed to be said? I run a business. I run a business. Uh, he runs a wedding business. He says, I thought it was the most important thing in the world, and I hope it's okay. And Locke says, I'm sure someone's handling it. You're probably fine. Hey, Boone, maybe you should go back. I've I've made a value judgment on you, and you cannot handle the rest of this trek, uh, this jungle trek, if not the Star Trek. You're, t- Besides, you're too much of a nerd. <laughs> it's going to rain in a minute. Trail's gone cold. Rough terrain ahead. Just get out of here. And Boone refuses. Boone straight up refuses. And oh, Mike Bloom, if only. If only he had heeded John Locke's advice here. If he had gone back, the odds of him surviving, they definitely increase, if not dramatically, because as we've established, Boone probably just blows up at the Black Rock. 
but if Locke yeah, had... We're really, we're really dealing a final destination for Lost at this point. If Locke has uh, the hatch discovery to himself, uh, is the only one to discover the hatch, does he bring anybody in, or does he keep it completely to himself? Would he bring Walt in on it? Yeah, it's a good question. And does guy. Walt end up climbing that beachcraft? Oh my god! And then Locke is in an unforgivable position for sure. Yeah. Then, then like Locke is like dead and buried right there, right then next to the Halliburton case with the marshal. Yeah. Yeah. J- I mean, Jack it's- tackling Locke at Boone's funeral would look like nothing compared to Michael just legitimately murdering John Locke. Yeah, exactly. And this time, nobody's going to be there to tear Jin off of Michael. Michael's going to now. It's a chain of. Uh, of farcasing essentially where Jin farcased Michael and Michael would farcas Locke and Locke would farcas Ben Linus and the cycle would just continue and continue I mean I guess the question is you know Boone would in taking John Locke's advice now would save himself from taking John Locke's advice later that would kill him right so it's essentially you know him it all depends on when he takes John Locke's word here but no boone wants to show i mean he's someone who has been consistently doubted over the course of these past 11 episodes that he really wants to prove that he you know can swim with the big boys i really like the way that he refers to Locke as mr Locke, especially how it compares to walt and you spoke about it before boone's regarded as a kid and even someone ian summerhalder is not exactly uh you know a young buck necessarily at least compared to someone like malcolm david kelly so it feels like everyone's just regarding him as someone who's a bit immature, and I think he's almost overcompensating here. So I wonder if it's almost his uh, his his need to be able to feel needed by some part of this community that's going to end up unintentionally spelling his doom in terms of, once again, those dominoes falling. I think he's like 25, Ian Summerhalder, at the time of filming this. So he's a, he's a young guy, and he's definitely among the younger um, actors on the on the main cast. And I think that right, yeah, but I think- but I, it's, it's weird. It's, it's it's a little weird for like for Jack to call Boone a kid, right? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't necessarily think so. I mean, Jack is like an established doctor. He's in his you know late thirties, forties. He's really far on in his career, and Boone is trying to be the captain of the USS Island Prize. Uh, and his experience is being in charge of a wedding company that he uh, is in charge of because of nepotism. Uh, and he might be like good at his job. He might be a great wedding business manager. I don't know. Uh, he's certainly like a nice kid. He's got good politics. I like his politics. I like his can-do attitude. But he's a kid. He's a kid compared to someone like Jack who went through years and years of uh, being forged out of a soft metal into a harder substance and being one of the top surgeons in Los Angeles. So I right. think like Jack treating Boone with with a, a measure of respect. Of course, they're both adults. They're both human beings. But uh, for Boone to be telling Jack what to do, yeah, it's like kind of a, a kid marching him around. I wouldn't, I, I, in Jack's shoes, I wouldn't like it that much. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I can understand that. I just find, I don't know, I always find the term kid uh, a little derogatory. It's definitely Maybe- a little disparaging, for sure. And from Boone's, uh, from Boone's perspective, yeah, for him to be like annoyed by it and frustrated by it and angry about it and hot by it, and especially with his life experience of like, I run a you know that is the world that he knows. Uh, I, wanna, I wish Boone had survived only that he could be on Shark Tank. Yes, of like we have, you know, yeah. uh, we, we have Lori Grenier, we have Mark Cuban. 
we have business owner Boone Carlyle yeah, of mean, the Oceanic have, 7. He could have been in the shark tank at the Hydra station, at least, and he didn't even get that far. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I get it from his perspective, and I think that it fuels a lot of his uh, his angst and his need to prove himself that ultimately is going to get him killed. I think it's all coming from an understandable, justifiable place, um, uh, a place that you can really relate to and understand. Um, but I, but I also, I, I don't think that necessarily the other perspectives aren't equally valid. Uh, I think right. that it, there's a, there's a lot of complex stuff here, uh, with, the, with these interpersonal dynamics. Um, but yeah, if Boone had just turned around, man, if Boone had just been like, yeah, you know what? Old man's got a point, got to go time to, time to go back and eat some boring bananas and call it a day. Uh, you know, he may have made it at least a little bit further. Um, great moment when the rain finally does pour down. Uh, Locke just like opens up his arms, smiling, looking up at the sky. I and, always love him when Locke does like the Natasha Benningfield and just like feels the rain on his skin. He just it's looks great. up and Locke is like a living Falmer's almanac, only like a week into living on the island and that he knew exactly in one minute the rain would come down. Yeah. They teach you how to predict the weather at a box company. Just love that line <laughs> delivery. Well, considering that, you know, what Locke does in his spare time at the box company, I would not be surprised if he was, like, perusing weather predictions that you would... I mean, because if he's going on his walkabout, he doesn't necessarily have a website to go off of. So I can imagine how he'd be able to predict weather and patterns, considering how probably, uh, divi- uh, you know, diverse the weather and patterns can be down in Australia. Oh, yeah, no. He's definitely deep on the internet. You know, Reddit's not a thing at that point, but... Uh, he's on like a Google about for sure. Or I don't know if it's is it an Ask Jeeves about at this point. Oh yeah, not definitely not a Bing about. It's not a Bing about. Uh, Yahoo about. Uh, or an Alt- Alta Vista about. Uh huh. An AOL about. An Owl about. Uh, but he's definitely uh, he's definitely deep on the internet. He's on message boards. <laughs> Do you think John Locke would get like I could imagine John Locke being the person to sign onto AOL and never getting the you got mail notification because nobody sends him anything. Oh uh, no, he's got a lot of spam. He's got a lot of spam. He's got a lot of Nigerian princes writing him that he's wiring money to. He's on a lot of news uh, newsletters for sure. Uh, all right, elsewhere in the jungle, muddy slice of jungle, Harry muddy slice of jungle. Uh, as Jack and Kate, they find another piece that Charlie has left behind. They hear Claire screaming off in the distance. Uh, Jack scrambles off in search of the screaming. Kate tries to keep up. They're climbing up this really steep, muddy hill. Uh, and Jack is going to slide down the hill, uh, he's going to like go all the way down to the bottom of the hill. And when he looks up, it's Ethan. Ethan the clown. Ethan Wise the clown is standing over him. And it's so creepy. And we've already heard this at the top of this episode. But it's that great moment of, if you do not stop following me, I will kill one of them. Do you understand? Uh. He's got his foot on the chest. And as we've already <laughs> we've already talked about the sound effects, yeah, we were, so much of the work here is he's throwing them around and the punches. We were not we were not eating celery in, the, in that first segment. That actually was Jack's bones crunching. I mean, he gets properly farcused here. I mean, yeah. Ethan does not know a lot about Jack. We know that Jack likes to get back up. Uh, he's never gonna you know stay down no matter what people say. But I loved it's a momentary appearance from Ethan, but this already is so different than the Ethan that we saw in the past two episodes, who was a little off the level, but at least was coming off as, like, friendly and a hard worker. This is, like, pure menace, Ethan, showing the exact threat that he is. And, I mean, it's a scary threat. We're gonna see it 
pay off several episodes down the line. R.I.P. Poor Scott, who ends up you know suffering as a result of this. Scott threat. or Steve? I think it's Scott. I really don't remember. Oh boy! It'll right. it'll never take. It'll as never I get take. To, as I as I look on the ass Jeeves here, as I go on my Jeeves about. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a really harrowing scene, and I really recommend people try to watch the uh, the Lost on Location, whether you have it on DVD or whether you find it on YouTube. Those are behind the scenes videos and them filming, and they do a really interesting job, sort of like walking through how this scene was filmed because this was not done by stunt people. This was William Mapother and Matthew Fox doing their own stunts, and so it's a lot of like. Josh, you and I love the stage choreography, the fight choreography of it all, and they do some here, and it's it's a lot of fun to watch, especially to have it transpire on screen, considering how hardcore it gets with Jack getting the piss kicked out of him in the rain. Yeah, I also have to issue a mea culpa, Mike. I know that I uh, I uh, uh, mapother shamed you last week about William's uh, last name, the actor who plays Ethan Rom. Uh, it's also not pronounced Mapother. Apparently, oh. uh, I was listening to a podcast that Damon Lindelof was on a long time ago, just because I was doing some deep dives into the to the Lindelof because I'm super into Watchmen right now. I just want to hear anything that that guy has to say about stories. And he was talking about some Ethan stories uh, and he pronounced it uh, Mapether. So we're both oh. everyone loses. Uh, uh, also, my uh, my Jeeves about brings forth that it was Scott who was found murdered on day 28. And poor Steve went down with Frogert in the Flaming Arrows. Yeah, but it's like the it's like the Berenstain Bears thing. This is like Mandela effect. I don't know if it's Scott or Steve, and I'm not going to believe the Internet on this one. And I'll never I will never know which reality we're actually in. Um, all right. So Jack's going to get his butt kicked. We're going to get a little tiny flashback uh, back to the hospital where Jack sees uh, the woman's husband, the woman who died, uh, the widow. Uh, the widower is threatening to sue him and Christian are having a really yeah. tough conversation. And I'm assuming Shonda Rhimes is watching this being like, hey, now this could be a show. This could be a show. Uh, here comes the weird slow motion again, by the yeah. way. Like, there's like uh, Christian's like patting the guy on the shoulder and it's like this very strange slow-mo shot. So... Uh, sometimes Lost looks very weird in its first season. This is one of those occasions. Yeah, I, I, I guess I really want to emphasize, look, look how Christian did, was manipulating you. He did the same hand on the shoulder as he did with this man. Which, again, I feel like just from what Christian was doing and being very robotic and methodical, you could sort of see what he was doing in that scene anyway, but they really wanted to underline this early on how Christian Shepard at this point is not doing very good things. So not, you know what? I'm, really. I'm fine with the repeated hits over the head, much yeah. like Jack got here. And back on the island, Kate wakes Jack up. The rain's gone. He's like, how long is I asked? He says it was a few minutes. He says that Ethan was here. Now it's Kate who doesn't believe Jack. How does that feel, Jack, to not be believed about Ethan attacking someone? This time yeah. it being you. And I do love the line, I'm not letting him do this, not again. Because again, if we're talking about the merging if uh, the dirt of the past and the water of the present are mixing together to form a delicious mud that Ugh. we find ourselves basking in, Jack is clearly like projecting some of his resentment towards Christian onto Ethan here, right? Of These are both two guys that have masqueraded as things that they're not, that have built repute on things that are clearly lies, and have gotten away with things that might have resulted in the deaths of people that do not deserve it. And while Jack, you know had to let one person go due to Christian's uh, ineptitude or malevolent actions, he's not going to let the same thing happen twice. And that's another reason why he is so adamant in pushing forward, even stubbornly so. It's yeah. not going to happen. Not again. 
Yeah. And in the flashback, final flashback of the episode, we kind of see that defiance again as well as Christian is giving his deposition. He's talking about how, in his professional opinion, the damage was irreversible by the time he was called in. But there's another shoe to drop that Jack was not aware of. At this point, Jack is on board. It's it's a white tennis shoe. At this point, there is this other detail that Jack just does not know. uh, And it's that the woman who died was pregnant. Uh, And Christian knew it, kept that from Jack. And Jack is really, really, really upset about this. uh, Rightfully so. And this is what inspires him to, to chime in and revise his statement. He tells the truth about how his father was operating under the influence. And by the time he got there, it was clear that not only was his dad impaired, but had severed the patient's hepatic artery, which in my professional opinion, caused the crisis that led to her death. Yeah, it's, I, I know that again, even though we bring it out the Matthew Fox impression, you can tell this is very tough for Jack to do. I mean, you can see the tears welling up in his eyes. He knows that, you know, this is probably one of the toughest things he's had to do, essentially sell down the river someone who he has looked up to in one way or another for all of his life. But like his father said, it's for the greater good. You know, we can certainly debate as to whether or not Christian was drunk, and that's what caused this woman to die. I know we'll get into it in the other section, but how many people's deaths could he is, is he preventing right now in making sure that this situation never happens again it's an extremely tough thing to do and you just see matthew fox's difficulty in getting through it i also love the comparison between sawyer and jack again we sort of see them as like two sides of the same coin in the way that they regard living on the island but it's so interesting that i mentioned this before like both of their breaking points were revolving around children you know sawyer wouldn't go through with the decep the deception against uh you know the alien family because he saw a kid Jack couldn't go through with the deception that Christian Lafo were there because he found out that this woman was pregnant. And so I guess this this idea of this kid being a game changer that really has both fundamentally been like, uh, you know, a, a no sell for them. Like, I'll do everything for you, but you bring a child into this and it's game over for me. All right. Well, speaking of it being game over, it's game over for Christian's career. Death to Christian's career. Uh, so, uh, maybe you'll get a <laughs> spiritual LVP point for dying in his career in this episode. Uh, but somebody almost dies here. Somebody very nearly dies when we get back to the island and Jack and Kate, they charge up the hill. And what do they see? They see Charlie Pace hanging from the tree. Uh, H-A-N-G-I-N-G. This is one of the best scenes of Lost. It's just, it's so shocking. The whole thing. Uh, I know we want to play uh, some of the audio from it, uh, and I feel like it'll it'll take you back. The scene itself is like almost four minutes, so we're not going to play yeah. it. I don't think we're playing the full thing. And and it's very it's not very uh, audio based. We'll certainly get it's into like a not part very dialogue heavy, but the music, the sound, I think it's going to really bring you back there. So let's let's listen to as much of it as we can for sound number seven, and then we'll we'll talk it through a little bit more. I'm breathing. Come on, breathe. Breathe, Charlie. Come on. Breathe. Come on. Come on. 
Charlie. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on, Charlie. Come on. commercial and charlie is and charlie's dead, dead. <laughs> they really no. do that though i mean it's this crazy fake out they do like the medium shot and then they do the wide shot yes. and, like you would ordinarily that would cut to commercial yeah and so we were all i mean we'll get into the gasp of it all him pulling a mimi from rent having a leap of moo but i mean yeah the, this scene is just like it always stirs emotions in me i want to say one of the many things i love about this scene Evangeline Lilly I know. is by far like third billing in this scene, but she kills it. Especially when we know of Kate as a pretty hardened person at this point. Like she is heaving sobs upon Charlie being dead and Jack trying adamantly and her trying to tear Jack away, being like, it's too late. He's dead, but he can't, she can't even bring herself to say it. I think it's such a powerful performance, especially when those tears turn to tears of joy once Charlie ends up living. I know we had some questions last week internally about uh, uh, the ranking, the scream acting on on Lost, uh, and that was hard. And the cry acting on Lost would be t- uh, tough to rank as well. Uh, but I do think at the end of the day, Evangeline Lilly would get my number one spot as far as the best crier on Lost. I think the, the and any time that Kate is crying, I always feel very emotional. Like I hate seeing Evangeline Lilly in that level of distress. She really just conveys uh, the awfulness of a moment, uh, and that's a big part of the success of this scene, um, which is just like such a procedural scene. You know, they they run up the hill. You hear that first gong uh, from Giacchino as you see Charlie hanging from the from the tree. Um, Jack runs immediately up to Charlie, lifts him up by the leg so that he can stop him from like all, from gravity pulling him down, help him out as best as he can. Kate immediately climbs this this wet rain slicked tree she has to leave she was, she was born for and- this josh she she had to drop the transceiver before so she could finally succeed now without freaking yes. out too much yes and so she climbs the tree she's leaning out she can't reach him jack has to pull him over she's holding onto a branch with one hand and sawing through this thick ass vine with this you know with the other hand and it's a pretty tiny knife and one-handedly she's able to do it. She's able to succeed in cutting it down. He drops. Charlie drops. Jack pulls off the blindfold. The gonging is still going on in the background. Then the CPR kicks in. The crying is kicking in. She's holding Charlie's hand. Uh, it's the segment that we've already listened to. And the music is swelling. And the pounding on the chest. And, 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 and what song is swelling, Josh, in particular? It's the, it's the, it's certainly not you all, everybody. Thank no, God. it is indeed life or death. The first yep. time we hear this song in Lost history, but certainly not the last, considering we will also hear it when Charlie actually dies. So uh, there's many ways why they do a really fun fake out here, including the musical motif. That's that's one big reason how Giacchino was able to pull one over on us. 
Well, it's just it's 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 so powerful. It's like you feel like you're watching this person die. There's just no way that he's going to make it out if you're alive. Uh, and Jack is just not going to give up. But that you're right that that wide angle it does make you think that you're going to cut to commercial. And I remember again like going back to that dorm room when I was watching this episode, being like, oh. Oh, that's awful. Oh, God, I'm so upset. And then we stay. We stay in the moment. We don't go to commercial. And Jack is not going to give up. And he starts punching the chest again. And Kate's like, come on! No, come on, please! This is egregious! This is terrible! Uh, And enough uh, punches to the chest. And Charlie eventually bursts to life. And I remember everybody in that dorm room, we were all just like, oh, my God! Uh, Yeah. You know, we were just like so, so hyped. Um, and he, he bursts to life. He's gasping for air. He's like a newborn babe clawing out at the world. And Kate's crying in happiness. And Jack holds him close. And they're both so happy. And Charlie's just shell-shocked. And it's just, it's staggering. It's staggering. If Charlie Pace had died here, Mike, Dianu. It would have been an excellent Charlie Pace death. It would have been shocking. It would have been gutting. It would have been done so beautifully, cinematically. Uh, it would have it would have uh, catapulted the rest of the season into such dangerous territory. The fact that Charlie doesn't have much of a storyline in uh, subsequent seasons until he goes back on the march towards death maybe argues that it could have been a better run for him in some alternate universe where he dies here, where it's just a much more compact and meaningful story. I'm glad that that's not the case. I'm glad that Dominic Monaghan is allowed to be on the show for as long as he is because that final death for Charlie is so emotional and it is so intense and it is one of the best moments in all of Lost. But I think it overshadows a little bit just how brilliant and tragic and terrifying and scary and hopeful and uplifting this moment was. This is one of this is one of those moments where Lost really demonstrates its magic, not just the magic of the island, which of course it's demonstrating here to some degree, um, but also the magic of this brilliant show and the way that it could move you and the way that it could capture you and just keep you glued to your chair uh, and 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 make you feel something so deeply for somebody who you had only at this point spent 11 episodes with is really, really incredible filmmaking. Well, not only that from the victim perspective, but also from the character perspective. I know we sort of lambasted Jack's methodology in searching after Charlie, but to watch him turn from, I wouldn't say confidence, but definitely going into, like, blinders on doctor mode into just pure desperation and frustration. I don't know if it's rain or tears pouring down Matthew Fox's face, but just the effort at which he is doing the, you know, very by-the-book pumps on the chest versus him just hammering his chest 20, like 30-plus times by the end of it, just desperate to eke one breath out of him, is really just showing, you know, Jack... Again, I know I keep saying at the end of his rope, but this is really the most desperate we've seen Jack. Even when he was sleep-deprived and chasing after the ghost of his father, this is someone who has been through emotional turmoil. You know, he hasn't really lost anybody at this point. Yes, the marshal was a big situation, but... This is someone he feel like he let down on his watch. And that is something that is so emotionally compromising for no matter how many surgeries that he's done, especially since he's been elected the leader. He's been elected the protector, not literally of the island at this point, but he feels like he's this group's protector and he's let them die on his watch when he wasn't watching them. And so to watch Jack's side of things as well is just such an interesting arc. I'll be completely candid. 
when I first watched this scene and how it turned out, I was not completely happy with Charlie living. I I felt it was a bit of a cop-out on Lost Part. Maybe it's because, again, I was under this these circumstances of like, okay, this show is really going to take risks. They've shown they've taken risks so far. They're going to kill off major characters. This is how Charlie dies. And it felt a little too out of the realm of possibility for me at this moment with what we knew of Lost for Charlie to suddenly resuscitate. I, I still don't necessarily think to this day that what Jack did brought Charlie back to life. I could see it be like a larger purpose of things considering what's going to happen in the next couple of seasons and maybe Jack's intentions might have woken up the island to that. I certainly have warmed up to it because like you said, this scene does an amazing job, no matter what you think of the end result, of running that emotional gamut where we go from horror to pulse-pounding action to frustration to pure sadness to almost like a depressing terror of oh my god this character is going to die charlie this character that's already been through so much he was finally on recovery he was finally going to find somebody he was turning late into date into mate is now turning it into dead this is um, incredibly horrifying and then for him to be alive and for jack and kate and him to just all cry in the rain as they embrace one another through being this trauma through this traumatizing experience is absolutely beautiful i'm so happy i came around to gain an appreciation of this scene because it really is just a nice microcosm of all that loss can represent in the journeys they take us through with these characters well i think one of the things too is and it's something that i've said uh, you know many times along the way is that lost changes shape uh when you encounter it at different points in your life uh and i think on the first watch if especially if you're doing it on the week to week um i can understand that frustration and i think maybe we felt a little bit of that too of like i can't believe they didn't kill charlie and that was like part of where the conversation was born out of, of like all right well charlie's safe they'll never do anything to charlie Charlie's fine. Charlie's got immunity. He's never going to be killed. He's going to make it to the end of the series. And that's the one person you can guarantee. Like, that's what we were talking about in college. Um, but I remember we had also heard uh, what you were talking about before, like these rumors that a, a, a main character was going to die. Uh, somebody was going to get killed off. And we very fully expected it to be Charlie in this moment. Um, and from that point onward, we were like, well, then who's it going to be? Uh, so we were really surprised by that. Um, but I think like in the week to week, like I could see it, I could see it playing that way. But even if you watch this as a binge on your first encounter through, you're going to move on to the next thing so quickly that I don't think that you're going to, you're going to waste too much time thinking about how this is a cop out. I think you're just going to be like so awed by the moment and still like spurred on, especially by the hatch reveal at the end of the episode that you're going to want to just immediately hit next and, and keep binging on Hulu or wherever you're watching the show. Um, but I think for me, the way that I'm encountering it now, obviously this is, you know, one of my many rewatches of lost this is like my fifth or sixth you know time through through the show uh you know i've, I've rewatched season one i don't even know how many times um and knowing the full scope of the show and knowing more about like where charlie goes and everything like that uh and like being able to to position this against some of the other great historic moments of lost uh i think adds some some new appreciation to the moment um, so just re-encountering it here uh, as we're doing kind of a week to week and going through it slowly. Um, and for me, really wanting to savor these moments because we're going through lost week to week, Mike. Uh, it's going to take us a while. But by the time that we're through it, it's going to be, what, 2021, 2022 to be realistic <laughs> about like when we're going to be done with the rewatch. So I'm probably not going back to this episode 
for several years. And then yeah. am I going to want to watch Lost again very quickly after we get to the end of the line in 2021, 2022? Yes, Probably you will. Probably not. Josh, no, you absolutely are going to. You're going to be like, great, we're going to start back at season one and we're doing it all over again. But yeah, these these are moments. And I think that's also There's an reason. element, though, Mike, that like I feel like I'm watching this for the last time. Like I know that that's not true, but there is an element to which I feel like I am, I am watching this moment um, as as I am right now, as I am who I am to this day, as this you know not quite thirty five year old person version of me, uh, I'm not going to be the same person when I see this scene again, and it's going to be it could be five years before I go back and watch this episode again. Uh, that's a long time. A lot can change, so I'm really savoring these moments. This is uh, one of the one of those like huge blockbuster moments that we've encountered so far that I think really gets uh, glossed over in the conversation of the best scenes of Lost. I really think it's one of the very best scenes this show ever creates. Yeah, I I mean I would go so far to say it's just beautiful. It's all lined up between the cinematography, the music, the acting, especially. It's just a beautifully crystallized moment, and it also really has a bit of a shadow over Charlie, especially. Charlie is not going to be the same way this season, let alone the rest of the series. I think it's very clear that he is very traumatized from not only nearly dying, but also, you know, if we're talking about Jack's guilt and Claire, quote unquote, you know, getting kidnapped on his watch, Charlie feels even more so guilty to the point where we go back to camp here and Charlie's silent for the vast majority of it. And even when he does talk, granted, maybe it's because of the rope burns, but he only muffles a few words. I mean, no, didn't see anything, hear anything. I don't remember anything. All they wanted was Claire. It's basically all he says. And there is just a pall from the lighting hanging over Dominic Monaghan's face that just represents that we're going to see a very different Charlie from here on out, I think, until we see Charlie pull that trigger. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So that's what happens. We go back to the caves. That's what that's what Charlie. That's all that he's willing to say. Uh, when Jack is checking in, he's like, what What did you see? Did you hear anything? I didn't see anything, hear anything. All they wanted was Claire. Um, Shannon's going to come to Kate. She's upset that Boone's not back. Kate's like, I'm sure they just made camp. I'm sure they're fine. Uh, and no, there's something else going on. There's another reason why Locke and Boone have not returned. And why don't we listen into the final scene of the episode? Are we lost? No, Boone, we're not lost. Sorry, it's just... I don't see how you can still be following this trail. I think we should go back, man. Don't you feel it? Feel what? It. All right, John. I'm going to follow the strips back. Suit yourself. Boom. You need this more than I do. What is that? Steel. Is that part of the plane? Part of the wreckage? What is that? That's what we're going to find out. 
but not until season two. <laughs> yeah, and we're not going to hear any more about it for at least a month in the real time of the airing. And in fact, uh, the very next episode that we will get into after this riveting hour, All the Best Cowboys Have Daddy Issues, will be one of the single worst episodes of Lost. Uh, so they really uh, dropped the flashlight, as it were. Uh, but that's it. That's all the best cowboys. That's the hatch reveal. Uh, we've got a lot to get into with the feedback, and I'm sure uh, we've got some behind the scenesy stuff about the hatch itself, uh, so that can guide us into our conversation about the hatch. Unless you want to say anything just about like this particular scene and this moment that really stood out to you, it's a it's a really strong ending for what's a really strong episode of the show. Let me just take a let me drop in a quick theory that maybe we can uh, chew on as we move on into the next section here. Locke's feeling might have been based on the electromagnetism circulating from the hatch. Mmm. Tell me more. Well, didn't he say, like, can't you feel it? You know, it. And you would say that, you know, uh, he, it's connected to, you know, you think it's his intrinsic connection to the island. But we also know that the Swan Station was in charge of regulating the electromagnetic flow. Could it be possible that maybe... Something within Locke's body or his own mind was getting just a feeling from that, that he was being driven to it, almost like a piece of metal to a magnet. Interesting. I like that. I like that. I think that that's a good theory. Because I think that, you know, again, we're basing this on Locke being the man of faith, but it could be quite a literal scientific explanation that leads Locke to this exact place. Wow. Yeah. I mean, well, I do strongly subscribe to the idea that the that the deal with Lost is that it is science and faith, not science or faith. Uh, so for there to be a, a scientific faith-driven reason for him to find the hatch in the middle of the jungle, I certainly like that. Um, yeah, he's like, suddenly my, my, my feelings hurt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, wait a minute. Now, now I, I'm picking up radio stations through my head from yeah. far away. Is that Danielle Rousseau's transmission that I've been hearing so much about? Who's that from Pete and Pete who has the metal plate in their head? Oh, that's, that was the mom. That was the mom. That's right. Yeah, he's like the mom from Pete and Pete. And Ethan's already the strongest man in the world. <laughs> yeah, he is. He absolutely is the strongest man in the world. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into our feedback. But before we do, now that Christian Shepard's career is over, Mike, he's got nothing but time on his hands to watch football, football, football. Football. He could make the game even more exciting by making BetDSI.com his betting partner. That's right, BetDSI, back in the house. I would ring a bell if I had one. Ding! Oh, that's a good bell. Uh, BetDSI has a live betting platform where you can watch all the events and even bet on all the games right up until the final whistle. New members are getting a 100% bonus match using promo code RECAP101. That's double your money to start winning Today, let me tell you a little bit more about BetDSI. They've been paying winners for 20 years. It's top rated on betting review sites. It's got a very user Mr. Friendly interface and mobile <laughs> site. Uh, BetDSI comes with the fastest payouts in the industry. You simply play, win, and get paid. BetDSI offers betting options for everything. Bet on NFL, NBA, NHL, boxing, all other major sports, politics, reality TV, esports, virtually anything. We probably could have bet on who's going to die from the Lost cast. And if you had money on Charlie in this episode, you were probably pretty disappointed. 
But but for one second, you were really happy. You were really excited for a second there. Uh, but that's why it's great, because you can use live betting at BetDSI to bet on games from start to finish, every play, every minute, until the end. So once you realize that it's not cutting to commercial and you're like, oh, I think Charlie might be all right, you change your bet. And everything's all right. You win. Uh, so new members, they get a 100% bonus match using promo code RECAP101. Double your money to start winning today. Once again, go to BetDSI.com and use promo code RECAP101 and get this limited time 100% bonus offer to make some extra cash. It's only a game until you bet it at BetDSI. All right, Mike, let's get into the others. And we are already on to other number two since we spent so much time on the Star Trek stuff. Uh, We're picking up some feedback from Raised by Another. Uh, This is from Dallin Cerevo, who wrote in about last week's episode and said, Hurley didn't want to say how he got his nickname. What is your theory on the Hurley nickname origin story that's fun <laughs> i don't want to get too visceral one? but it has to do with vomit right yeah he definitely puked he definitely puked uh he definitely went on he a gravitron d- as a kid after trying to impress <laughs> uh, a crush uh on the zipper at the local fair and he ended up puking everywhere uh yeah not, all over not, dj not balls. projecting I'm not projecting onto Hurley, but Hurley himself may have projected onto someone (laughs) else. Uh, Craig Falkenheim had written in uh, and said, Mike had asked, how did Malkin get Claire's number? Mike, he's psychic. He never has to use the phone book to get anyone's phone number. Yeah, but is he? Is he, Craig? Is he psychic? That's not how psychics work. (laughs) Psychics Psychics just like psychically know your number? Yeah, that's not like like they they know what's going to happen unless... They know that they're going to dial a number yeah, to get to you. It. I guess that's it. It's sort of like weird. It's all. It's like time travel where like you don't want to create a paradox by meeting yourself. Mm, yeah, it's a time cop, time cop situation. Uh, so that's it. That's really it on the the raised by another stuff to to pick up. Let's let's proceed. A baby sized amount of feedback from raised yes. by another. Well, we've got a mouthful here uh, to talk about with the discovery of the hatch. We're getting into some behind the scenes information that the great Ben behind the curtain has compiled for us. Uh, this is other number three, uh, and it is about the discovery of the hatch. This is stemming from Javier Griot, Mark Swatch's uh, great lost will and testament that we've referred to a few times here. Apparently, J.J. Abrams wanted the hatch in the pilot, uh, but Damon overrode that idea. This is from Javier. Uh, J.J. wanted the hatch in the pilot, even though no one knew what would be in it. J.J. was more than happy to pump the decision as to what would actually be inside the hatch to the writer's room because of his deeply felt conviction that the mystery was as good a journey as the reveal and would be so tantalizing that it would keep the audience clamoring, even if, if, even if the subject to be eventually revealed was not for thought. It was at that point that I first heard Dar- Damon articulate, wisely and for reasons of self-preservation and sanity, the one hard and fast rule that he lived by for the entire first season. He would not put anything on screen that he didn't feel confident he could explain beforehand. So the reason the hatch doesn't come up until all the best cowboys have daddy issues, even though J.J. was stumbling for it since before the pilot was written, was because Damon didn't fully believe in any of the ideas being presented to him for what was there. 
As a writer's room and a think tank before that, we kept pitching possibilities, but nothing we threw out ever overrode Damon's concern that if we shat the bed on that reveal, the audience would depart in droves. The hatch was pitched as a gateway to a frozen polar bear habitat, the mouth of a cave full of treasure that would so entrance the castaways with dreams of avarice that Jack would ultimately be forced to seal it shut with dynamite. My God, it's like a Tom Sawyer wet dream come true. It was thought of as the door to a biodome whose inhabitants could only breathe carbon dioxide and even a threshold to an Atlantis-style lost civilization. Uh, Javier says, I believe that my idea was that it led into the conning tower of a nuclear submarine that had run aground and been buried in an epic mudslide. I thought this could be a rich area for stories about salvaging equipment and loose nukes and such things. As we trudged through the first half of season one, Damon rushed into the writer's room one day with an uncharacteristic bounce in his step and declared that inside the hatch, there's a room with a guy in it. And if he doesn't press a button every 108 minutes, the world will end. We, when we asked why this Byzantine mechanism was necessary, the explanation was a lot more diffuse. It had to do with the exotic source of energy at the core of the island that caused all the other trouble faced by the castaways, at least until someone else figured out how to beat it. Thus armed with an operating theory with which Damon was comfortable, we soldiered on, put the discovery of the hatch into the episode, and J.J. finally got his mystery box. So that is the origin of the hatch, Mike Bloom. Great story. Great story. Crazy story. If again, we're talking about sliding doors, sliding hatch doors. I can only <laughs> imagine what sort of world it would live in where it's the door to a biodome where assumingly Stephen Baldwin and Pauly Shore come out <laughs> yeah. for a crossover. Also, I, I'm so glad that the hatch was not in the pilot for a number yes, of reasons. Too. One too. of them being there was so much going on in the pilot that I think the hatch would have absolutely been overkill, especially if they had no idea at the time what it would be. I agree. I think that the hatch being at the midpoint uh, or the, you know, the relative midpoint of season one is a much better spot for it. And it gives the back half of the season a lot more uh, a a lot more juice than maybe it would have had without it. Like, I think it needed a new mystery and this is a great new mystery. Uh, So that's fantastic. Other number four. And this is something that I actually hadn't picked up upon until Ben Martell notified it uh, to us. Uh, The location of the hatch is retconned. Mike, um, in the original script, the hatch was to be underwater. When discovered in this episode, it's clearly right next to flowing water, like a stream. However, within a couple of episodes, the hatch is in a clearing with no flowing water nearby at all. Uh, I hadn't noticed that before, but yeah, like when when Locke and Boone are walking up the rough terrain and he throws the flashlight, definitely feels like there's flowing water. And I know that it had been raining, but it seems like the type of water that is by a stream. I do think that the location changed. I had no idea. I support the decision. Find a place that's more cinematic in the light of day. Right. And probably a little less wet as well, considering how much time you're going to spend there. I mean, what are our thoughts about the idea of terraforming Jacob? What if Jacob's like, I don't like that location. Let me move this stream somewhere else. You know, maybe it wasn't the location that changed, but the placement of the stream. And Jacob decided, if I want these people to be located around this hatch, I better make it as presentable for them as possible. Interesting. Hanging out a lot. Yeah, no, that's a good point. It's like, you know, maybe we should just uh, change this up a little. Yeah, I like this idea that Jacob's essentially playing the island like it's Minecraft. And he's just trying to place the blocks everywhere. Yeah, and just our first uh, instance of coming in here and saying... Uh, that this is probably the time that it would have been really nice if Locke and Boone had just like walked like maybe an additional three minutes away from the hatch. 
they would find a door, like a door in the side <laughs> of a hill. They could just knock on that. Probably have yeah. an easier time getting in. Exactly. Maybe it'd probably be covered with less mud. You don't need to clear it aside. No need to create a weird trebuchet. No need to cause one of your party members to die through a big plane on the side of a cliff. A much easier method. But you know what? Uh, genius is 1% inspiration or 99% perspiration or rain, as it were. As it were. All right. Other number five. Let's get into our series Bible story of the week, an abandoned storyline that could have made it onto Lost. Ben Martell writes, uh, pulling from the series Bible, that several of the castaways awaken to find something sharp sticking in their sides. Blow darts! Oh, God. Adding to their growing horror, someone has painted tribal markings on their makeshift shelters. Paranoia dictates that the others are finally planning an attack which necessitates our group's first real attempt to build up their defenses until it becomes clear that the threat might not be coming out from outside, but coming from within! (laughs) So, the blow darts are a signal that there's someone on the inside of the camp? And I guess uh, Javier Griot Mark Swatch had done an an interview uh, or or spoke at Carnegie Mellon University, and there is a, a report about this appearance that he made where he talked about the script for this episode originally containing a scene where Kate and Jack come under blow dart attack uh, while following Ethan. Are they sure uh, they were following Ethan or were they trying to replace some sort of relic with a bag of equal weight? That could be it. <laughs> yeah, it's very Indiana Jones. I mean, I guess that there is technically like kind of like a dart attack uh, at the end of season two. But it's like not a blow dart unless yeah. like that's how they, they're using like these like little shocker dart things that they've got. Uh, yeah, that would have been interesting. The blow dart episode didn't happen. I think we're okay. Uh, other number six, uh, apparently, uh, according to Ben Martell, uh, there was a version of this episode where Locke was originally going to be accompanied on the tracking by Sullivan, not Boone, by the oh. rash man. What? Uh, and, he survived and, his golf ball encounter? And that once again, here comes Boone taking over the role of a background character. Is it an indication that the show didn't know what to do with Boone? Um, I don't know if it's so much that, so much as they were like, why would Rash Guy go on the tracking expedition? Also, why would we keep using Rash Guy as a character? He's terrible. (laughs) Yeah, he's just going to keep complaining about his rash. I mean, I guess he'd be the closest to a red shirt because his entire body is red from that rash at this point. Uh Yeah, that's right. All right, other number seven, the impact of Charlie's near death. Uh, this is from Krista Grexuk. Uh, I'm sure I mispronounced that last name. I apologize, Krista. Krista writes in and says, I was such a huge Lord of the Rings fan. I was also slightly into Party of Five at one point. So for the beginning of Lost, I called Charlie Mary and Jack Charlie. It got very confusing. <laughs> when they found Mary's bandages, bandages, that's what they're called. I'm such an idiot. When they found Mary's, that was my comment, not yours, uh, Krista. Uh, when they found Mary's <laughs> bandages, I remarked, the leaves of Lothlorien do not idly fall. But when I saw Mary hanging, I was overwrought. And Charlie saving him. <laughs> so that's confusing because oh, Jack, yeah, is- <laughs> Jack plays Charlie Salinger on Party of Five. So that's what Chris is talking about. Uh, this was my big lost moment. It was then that I realized that these characters deserved their real names. Mary became Charlie <laughs> and Charlie became Jack. So purely because and this, of this is like, where I became totally this, invested. This weird... The 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 life and death aspect of a who's on first routine caused Krista to be like, I think I should call them by their character names now. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that that's good. I, I agree, though. I think that this was an episode where you like stand up and take notice. If you hadn't already uh, at this point, I think you get to this this episode and you're just like, you're so hooked. You're so hooked by the end of it. At least I, I really remember feeling that way. I was like, oh, God, uh, I will never miss an episode of this ever again. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I had already written off astronomy at this yeah, point. The semester was almost over. It is written in the somehow, stars that Josh will never attend astronomy again. I was somehow, uh, I, I made it to like another lecture at one point because I remember there being a really terrible substitute teacher who had a very funny. Uh, oh, no. Was, uh, it, was it Mr. Linus? No, it wasn't Dr. Linus. Uh, he didn't go to all that schooling for you to call him a mister. Uh, <laughs> anyway, neither here nor there. Let's go to other number eight. Another story about all the best cowboys and Lord of the Rings a little bit. Anyway, uh, Elise Demeter writes in, uh, all the best cowboys scarred me like crazy when it first aired. I was a Charlie stan because of my love for Mary and Lord of the Rings. The night this episode first aired, I was at my sister's middle school Christmas choir concert. I kept telling my dad to drive home as fast as he could so I could watch the episode that night. It was the first and only episode my whole family watched together. (laughs) I remember laying on the living room floor halfway to tears because that's how 12-year-old me coped with televised drama. By the way, that's how 35-year-old almost me uh, copes with television drama, so at least no shame. Uh, She says, completely enraged at the fact that ABC would air such a terrible episode on Dominic Monaghan's birthday. What a crappy gift, I thought. Over the years, I convinced myself that I misremembered the air date because it felt too ironic. But I checked recently to find that all the best cowboys did, in fact, air on Dominic Monaghan's birthday. How about that? I had no idea. Well, Shakespeare died on his birthday, too. So Charlie would have been up there with the greats. A statistical anomaly. Yeah, December 8th. Uh, is the December 8th, 2004 was when the episode aired, and December 8th, 1976 is when the world got its first whiff of the man who would be Charlie Pace. Hell of a birthday gift. I could imagine, be like, hey, friends and family, come over and watch me be a bloated corpse for like three minutes on national television. Uh, Let's get into Ethan. Other number nine, a couple of takes on Ethan. First from Daniel Brennan, uh, who is remembering some of his first watch impressions of Ethan. Over time, Daniel writes, I feel like I have forgotten many of my first impressions, especially from the first few seasons. However, I distinctly remember watching Ethan absolutely destroy Jack, despite the fact that they're fairly similar in terms of size and build and thinking, is Ethan human? Am I the only one on their initial watch of this episode who thought that Ethan and the others were aliens or at least more than just regular humans? Um, I very much remember thinking, so there's got to be something a little bit like super powered about the others. Like whoever these people are, they've got like at the very least enhanced strength. Mm. Um, I definitely remember feeling that way. Well, here's an interesting thing. So you know how... I don't know, maybe this is just because of my knowledge of Dragon Ball Z, but about how they trained under increased gravity to sort of, like, increase their strength level once they got back to the normal gravity of Earth or Namek or wherever they may be. Again, we're talking about the electromagnetism. Maybe that affects the gravity a bit on the island. And because we know that Ethan was born and raised on the island and spent most of his life here, maybe that's allowed his muscles to acclimate and develop a super strength that compared to some other people would not necessarily hold. And considering that he was the last person born on this island until Eren, he would be the only person alive, really, that possesses those skills. Yeah, his power levels are certainly off the charts. Yeah, he's definitely like the Vegeta right now. Over 9,000! I mean, I guess if he had stuck around for longer, become a bit of a... Over 9,000! 
what nine thousand? Uh, I mean, I guess I guess if he had stuck around for longer, though, I guess Ben Linus is more of the Vegeta in terms of like the weird anti-hero, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. Oh, that's great. Someone's got to draw up some uh, some Super Saiyan. They, bo- they both have spiky hair. Oh my god! I want to see the full Lost cast in Super Saiyan mode. I need to see Saeed. Super Saiyan Saeed is something oh, I need yes, in my life. Oh yes, with those ringlets, just like yes. in the air, blonde. Oh, I need it. I need it. I absolutely need that. Uh, but Jordan from Wisconsin had wondered about the same thing too. I'm currently at the beginning of season three in my rewatch. I don't remember the full Ethan storyline. I know he's a doctor, but not how or why he's such a stone cold Superman ninja fighter. Is it ever explained? Uh, Jordan, I believe we've given you the best explanation you're ever going to get other than the fact that he betrays the dharma initiative and joins the others and is responsible for killing hundreds of people uh from a very early age and so probably was trained to be a little bit of a badass yeah he's uh, certainly uh has one more fight than jack has at this point in their lives oh no he's a flat-out sociopath yes, considering the fact that he like killed his parents i think the fact that he has no remorse for who he's fighting i think gives him an edge over anybody and he was able to get the jump on Jack as well. And once he had Jack down, he was able to just keep on, keep it on. Yeah. Uh, other number 10 from Stefan Johnson. Uh, why does this cowboy have daddy issues? Uh, Jack is always trying to be like his father. At the same time, he doesn't seem to like his dad very much. And he knows he's an alcoholic. Why is he trying so hard to be like his dad? Is it just to prove that he's good enough? Uh Hard to get out from underneath the shadow of your parents. I think for anybody. Or maybe just for me. Uh, but I certainly think that that's a fairly universal idea. That like you do feel like this. Much like you're uh, supposing that Locke feels this electromagnetic pull to the hatch. Like you feel some sort of electromagnetic pull to the people who made you. Yeah, well, especially the fact that he is directly not only working in his field, but working directly under him. It's not something that he can escape. He has to live with it. Every single day, and you can only assume that that talk in the study from White Rabbit has, has constantly been reverberating in his head of, you just don't have what it takes. He is so eager to prove that he does have what it takes to his dad that he feels, okay, uh, the best person that my dad thinks I can be is a version of himself. And so he yeah. tries to emulate him in every way, warts and all, as we'll see with Jack's own lapses into alcoholism. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, he's such a he's such a young person when he's getting this type of um, parenting from his father. Uh, When you fail, you just don't have what it takes after he's just gotten his ass kicked on a playground. Rather than getting a hug, he gets a talking to uh, and a life lesson of like, you're just not tough enough to get in a fight. Uh, You know, as as Christian mentions in this episode, I know I was hard on you. Uh, And I think that he and I sacrificed certain aspects of our relationship, he tells him. Um, There's some like tender moments between these two across the series. But uh, certainly at the very, very end when uh, all is forgiven because we're all dead and that's great. Uh, But, you know, I think it's 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 a lot. And I I think that you see this in a lot of human beings, people who are uh, so um, so hardened uh, by the way that they were reared. Uh, and certainly that is uh, that is the case with Jack Shepard. So I think that that is why this cowboy has daddy issues. Other number 11, uh, the great Brendan Fitzpatrick writes in and says, this is one of my top five favorite episodes of Lost and one of the best episode titles of the series. I certainly agree, Fitzy, with best episode titles uh, of the series. I don't know about uh, that. I love it. All the best cowboys have daddy issues. It's very memorable. Uh, Fitzy continues and says, but my question is, was Jack right? Was Christian drunk? We don't see any real evidence from the acting of John Terry in the surgery scene. I think it's meant to make us question Jack to a degree, since he's also making bad calls on the island. Uh, What do you think about that? Do you think there's any chance that Christian wasn't drinking? I mean, if he wasn't, 
it doesn't mean that he wasn't drinking beforehand and then he's not going to drink moving forward. I think the fact that that Christian specifically said to Jack, I know my limits, like that is the smoking gun to me. You know, that's your friend who's like, listen, I can still drink and drive. I know when I'm buzzed. And totally. like, that's still extremely dangerous. So like I said, I think it was something extremely hard for Jack to do. And yeah, maybe Christian wasn't so sloppily drunk that, you know, maybe cutting the artery was just a, a slip of the fingers. But that being said, Jack has also prevented some m- catastrophic things from possibly happening. If Christian thinks he can keep getting away with it, if he indeed has drank beforehand, then there could have been much, much worse situations and much, much more people, unborn children, mothers, wives, husbands, brothers, fathers, mothers lost because of his actions. And so I, I do really commend Jack for what he did. Even if Christian wasn't drinking here, it doesn't mean that he wasn't drinking numerous times previously, as he seems to allude to. Other number 12, Ben Martell wonders, is it possible that Locke knowingly took the false trail and left Jack to the real trail on purpose? It seems like Locke got fed up with Jack and his hunt for Claire and saw an opportunity to start seizing his own destiny by taking Boone out for bonding time. That's funny. Um I'm unlikely, but I, I like your idea, Mike, that uh, that Locke feels pulled towards something. Yeah. Uh, and so he goes in the direction that's pulling him. And I, and I like that idea for Jack as well, right? Like they both uh, go off in search of the thing that they're truly after. Uh, in that moment, Jack is after uh, fixing a personal mistake. Uh, and so he goes off in that direction uh, and needs to save somebody. He goes off in the direction of the person who needs to be immediately saved. And Locke goes off in pursuit of destiny. And even if it's a destiny that he ultimately doesn't like so much, uh, it is a, a destiny he pursues all the same. Um, other number 13 from Caitlin Ash. Uh, if you gave me 10 guesses to remember how they discovered the hatch on Lost, I never would have landed on Ian Summerhalder drops a flashlight on it. <laughs> Hashtag justice for Boone. Yeah, there's uh, no... The, listen, <laughs> if, if Boone didn't have those butterfingers, those booter fingers, uh, he would not have... The hatch wouldn't have been discovered. And then they just would have went on with their merry business. Really funny. Uh, other number 14, uh, Hurley the Warrior. Uh, Scott French uh, wondering about that comment as well. Uh, that line that Hurley says, back home I'm known as something of a warrior myself. Is it ever explained? Is it video games? Is it a school mascot? The only time I saw Hurley semi-throw down was when he tackled Sawyer. Uh, is there any other evidence of a John Wick Hurley? Well, there's no dogs involved, so I don't know if Hurley exactly has that arc to it. Video games is interesting because... I would say if Lost was set, like, five years later, Hurley would absolutely be invested in WoW, right? Likely. I think that that would be good. Um, I think also, I mean, like, who knows what kind of uh, what kind of storylines were left on the cutting room floor in terms of flashbacks of uh, once Hurley gets all of his money. Like, what kind of, like, high-stakes arena does he buy his way into? I could imagine him trying to, like, invest to actually make, like, Death Race a real thing, you know? <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, that'd be fun. Uh, other number 15 from Stefan Johnson. Uh, did Hurley ever pay Walt? Uh, we've, already, we've already touched on that a little bit. Uh, I hope so. You know, by the end of Lost, there's the epilogue, the new man in charge, uh, in which Ben and Hurley go and recruit Walt to come back to the island. I hope at the very least he's uh, paid him the 20K with interest uh, and gives him a much better salary than that. I think he's earned it. Well, at least he's like, maybe he feels he's paying it forward. By being like, hey, I'll bring you to the island where you can also talk with your dad and settle some unfinished business. Yes. Um, all right. And the final other this week, uh, a roundup as we often do. Once again, 
Uh, Jim Fells has his music analysis video that you should watch from this episode, uh, the, the introduction of the life and death theme. Uh, so great to explore everything that Jim has going on there. We will definitely uh, point to it in this uh, in the show notes for this. Also, apparently, uh, Nicholas Rainville had a song for you, Mike, by Jonathan Colton about how much kids ruin everything. I don't know if you checked this out. I have, and I absolutely love it. I do love Jonathan Colton. Creepy Doll is one of my uh, personal favorite songs. So I appreciate it in lieu of uh, the stuff that I said about not necessarily sympathizing with Thomas's attitude last week, but at least understanding his perspective. And yeah, it's it's a I, I uh, encourage a lot, a lot of parents to listen to it. It's a very tongue in cheek way of talking about parenthood. All right, uh, April asked us to talk about how freaking gorgeous the DVD menus are. They are. They're spectacular. The yeah. stunning Oahu scenery, which you can see for yourself if you join me at the Lost Con in Oahu, Hawaii. Uh, on Honolulu uh, in May 2020. Go to the Lost Con. Search it out on the internets. Uh, join me. I've already heard from some people who are who are going to make the schlep. Wow. They may have a fun down the hatch crew out there. You've recruited the people to your cause. If you want to see DVD menus come to life, but yes, yes, to April's point, they're so serene. Like there's no music or clips from the show. It's just like four or five titles in front of just B-roll footage of some sort of landscape that's used in Lost, and it is so beautiful. And it emotionally steals you. It pounds that that soft metal, gets you ready for the emotional wallop you're sure to experience whenever you tune into an episode of Lost. Yes. Uh, Ethan Lyons wanted us to know, uh, please do provide feedback about if you were talked to during the live know-it-alls about Down the Hatch. I feel like I need to know after all the talk. Yeah, we got we got into it with some people. Yeah. Uh, we, we were approached by a bunch of people who were listening to Down the Hatch. It was exciting. It was really, really great to get that feedback in person. Oh, that was so awesome. I mean, I'm so grateful for the amount of people that write in with other stuff or not every week to talk about the podcast. But uh, Josh, I don't know if you get the same uh, feeling that I do, but there's just something about no matter whether it's talking about Down the Hatch or just any of the Rob has a podcast podcast, just seeing the people in person who take in the material that you put out or even just the same material that you do is just an indescribable feeling. It's pretty awesome. You know, we, we feel like we're squawking into microphones for a few hours of time every week and we get to hear from you guys, which is awesome. But sometimes it's just great to put a face to a name, you know, to see that there's a living, breathing person who indulges in the content you put out there and really sympathizes with it and loves it. And we are so, so grateful for that. Like Josh said, I had many great conversations with Losties alike about uh, Down the Hatch and the, the appreciation for it. It's really, I cannot say enough about how much it just has meant the absolute world to us, the lost world as well. It's meant the world of Atlantis to us, <laughs> right. uh, to be able to talk with people at Live Lost Nodal. city of Zinge. Every yeah. word of it was absolutely true. Exactly, and hopefully more events moving forward. But yeah, that was, that was you know, we uh, we hedged our bets a bit last week, but much like Bet DSI, I don't know how much we needed to ahead of time. No, absolutely not. Uh, I echo everything that you just said. Uh, Down Servo says that there is one additional dude this week. We are at a total of 33 dudes. Uh, All right, three DPEs. All right, let's get into 23 points where we are tracking who are the MVPs and LVPs of each episode, and we are tallying it along the way. Uh, Mike is going to be giving out two MVP points this week. I'm going to give out three, then I'll give out two LVP points, and Mike will give out three LVP points. The headlines at this hour, in first place, Kate has six, 
MVP points. Saeed is behind uh, in second place with four MVP points. And then it's a three-way tie for third between Jack Shepard, John Locke, and Son at three apiece. And at the bottom... Yeah, Son's on this show. She has not been on for quite a while. It's been a minute. At the very bottom, uh, it's a three-way tie at the bottom between Randy Nations, Sawyer, and Thomas, who I dumped upon last week. Uh, I felt great about it. Um, I don't think that we're going to... Actually, I think that we're going to get probably another negative three. Uh, I think that we're probably going to get another person. We might have a... We might have a new contender, actually. No, we might uh, have a new contender, and we might have a Mount Rushmore of negative threes, but uh, more oh as we get into the numbers of it all. All right, well, let's give out some MVP and LVP points. I know we ragged on him a lot, uh, but he does save Charlie's life. He does do the right thing, and it's a very difficult right thing to do in the flashback. I got to give Jack an MVP point in this episode. Yeah, I think that, again, I don't know if the end justifies the means, but what he was able to do, plus I give it to him for all the flashback stuff, what he had to do must have been extremely tough, especially given his complicated relationship with his father and all the ethical uh, all the ethical circumstances as well. And the fact that he was able to go through with it, albeit tears in his eyes, was very well done and a very, very good performance from Matthew Fox this episode, in my opinion, in both past and present I'm going to give my one of my MVP points to the leader of the other tracking party. Give it to John Locke. Locke has been skulking in the shadows for a couple episodes, but now he gets to be the hunter. And while he may not have found uh, his prey, he did find another target in the hatch. And we got to see him play around a bit. He was a bit sassy. He made a new relationship with Boone. So I feel like it was a good episode for Locke. MVP point number two uh, goes to tracker number two, goes to Kate Austin, still with her commanding lead in the 23 points section. Uh, So she's going to rise to seven here. Uh, She put up with Jack's BS and she was an expert tracker. She was able to lead them to Charlie at the very least. So got to give props to my girl, Claire. And by Claire, I mean Kate. I don't know why I said Claire. <laughs> Listen, she's at the top of mind. You know, she's still missing in action. Props to Claire as well. But I mean, she wasn't even in the episode. So. I'm going to put someone on the board here. 11 episodes in, Walt is Whoa! going to make the board here with an MVP point. This was a big Walt's World Tour, as you said before, Josh. I mean, I think one of the things that we're seeing in these first few episodes is communication is still a little bit of a tough subject for these survivors to work on. Some (laughs) people don't even know about the polar bear. Some don't know about the transmission. But Walt is the newsie that we all needed here on the island. He's going from person to person, talking about what's happening. I love his scenes with Sawyer. I love his scenes with Hurley. He stood up to his dad, who was saying some pretty stupid things this episode. So I'm happy to finally give Walt a point here. I love it. I think it's well-earned, especially because we're only really going to have this season uh, I mean, he's yeah. going to show up other unless times. Unless we want to honor like him showing up in the jungle and causing Anna Lucia to shoot Shannon. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't know that I'm, I'm going to do that. Um, I'm going to give an MVP point. I know he's the bad guy, uh, but what Ethan did was very impressive. Wow. <laughs> he, wow. He improvised on the, he improvised on the fly. Uh, he, he was able to take both Charlie and Claire at the same time. He's able to have Claire uh, on standby as he's knocking out Charlie and stringing him up uh, and ha- leaving him hanging for dead. Somewhere in between all of this, he has Charlie and Claire off screen while he's kicking the crap out of Jack. 
So, uh, yeah, how can you not give Ethan a point here? It's very impressive stuff. I know he's a, he's a jerk, but he's a very effective jerk. <laughs> I I love it. I love it so much. He's just he's uh you have to admire his skills, I suppose. His actions we cannot condone, but you know what? His physicality is something to be admired. I think so. I think absolutely. All right, uh, you get your first uh, LVP point to toss out. Who do you want to throw under the bus? Throwing it to Papa Shepard once again. Christian, well, there might be some more interesting moments from you down the line, but woof, this was not a great coming out party for you, my friend, on Lost. Yeah, uh, I have two LVP points that I'm giving to Christian. I'm giving wow. both of them to Christian. you have Christian. been really like going all in on these people the past couple weeks. Well, I think that what he did was bad. I think that what he did was bad. It was like, uh, it was very, very bad. It was, he he got, you know, he was drinking on the job and it led to someone dying and then he lied about it and he was really manipulative towards Jack uh, and he was trying to cover up the death of an unborn child and all of that and like the whole thing. It's just really, really bad. And I, I cannot, I know that I've been giving LVP points to everybody who dies. I cannot give an LVP point to the person who dies on the table. I'm all, not yeah, that we, horrible. Yeah, even Josh has limits, people. Even I have limits. Uh, but Christian's career dies, so I'm counting that as a death. Uh, so, uh, yeah, two points on to Christian. And with you giving him a point, that's three points on to Christian in the LVP, which makes him uh, the, the team leader of the, negative, uh, of the negative section. He's got negative four. Unlucky. Unlucky number. Yeah, let's also remember that any on-island Christian Shepherd stuff is credited towards the monster, not Christian Shepherd. True, so this, exactly. This is purely through flashback Christian Shepherd. So it'll be interesting to see, because this is certainly not the last we'll see of him. Jack was flying high up to this point. I'm going to cut him down, much like <laughs> what happens to Charlie. Because while I think what he did was admirable, both in saving Charlie and what he did in the flashbacks, I cannot write off the way that he acted the other three quarters of the I know, episode. I know. I know. So it all evens out. Uh, and, and for my final LVP point, I'm going to have to... I know he's uh, he's he's ha- wrote a pretty good streak. I don't think he's earned MVP points, but you know what? He's proven himself to be pretty useful now that they moved to the caves. But Michael just continues to prove <laughs> Poor guy. how maybe uh-huh. fatherhood is uh, not as fitting to him as a nice golf club. I, I just think that... You know, he's uh, complaining about uh, Locke leaving him behind, him actually get putting his money where his mouth is and not 20000 by having to form his own search party. And him also apparently like just like, dumping Walt off onto Hurley, the umpteenth survivor that he just left Walt behind with, just, just shows that this is not a great Michael episode. And so it was a little bit of slim pickings, especially because I don't want to put too, too much on Christian. I want to spread the wealth a little bit. So I figured I'd throw another one Michael's way. Fair enough. I think that that's totally fair. Um, all right. Let us... Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Michael is now in that negative three category. There's a four-way tie in the negative three, uh, and Christian's at negative four, so they are anchoring the LVPs. Uh, Kate is still in the top with seven. Jack could have made it into that uh, that uh, second-place tier. Uh, John Locke is the only one who's going to pass into that tier. So Kate with the gold, Locke and Said tied for the silver, and Jack and Son are in the bronze. Um, all right, let's get into 4.2 stars. These are our episode rankings. We are ranking the episodes of Lost as we go through down the hatch. The way we do this is I give a score. 
Mike gives a score. You give scores. You write into us and tell us from a scale of zero to 4.2 how you rate the episode of Lost. Then we average the audience score, use that as a third data point, and then we average my score, Mike's score, and the audience score for the final official down the hatch score. This is a flexible document for season one throughout season one. We will shut it down once we are through season one, and season one will be locked in place, but it is not too late for you to be submitting your rankings for season one. Um, With all that said, Mike, at the start of this podcast, I said, uh, I think that this is one of my favorite episodes of Lost, uh, and I had initially put it at a 4.2, but thought that that was too high and too crazy, and so I talked myself down to a 4.0. Over the course of talking through all the best (laughs) Cowboys have daddy issues, I've once again talked myself back into saying, you know what, screw it. Uh, whatever happened, happened, and I had it as a 4.2 at the start, and I think that this is basically a flawless episode of Lost. Look, this is my favorite show of all time. I'm going to be giving up a lot of 4.2s. I'm going to be At least in the first it, season. And I'm going to leave it to you, Mike, and you, the listener, to keep me honest, but I think that I need to make my mark. Uh, and <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I see an episode that I think is just a lights-out episode of Lost, i got to call it as it is and call it as I see it. And all the best Cowboys have daddy issues to me is a 4.2. Uh, so I'm going to go with it. I'm going all the way, 100%, A-plus. Daddy would be proud. All the best Cowboys have daddy issues 4.2 from Josh Wiggler. Well, I don't know, but Zaddy be proud is the real question. I don't know. I have no idea. That'd be a different episode. All the best cowboys have Zaddy issues. They certainly <laughs> yeah. do. The Midnight Cowboys. Yes. Um, I'm going to go. I mean, listen, I'll bring you a bit down to earth, but not that much. We're still hovering in the, the troposphere here of rankings. I'm going to give this one a nice 4.0, which is actually the one that I gave uh, White Rabbit as well, the last Jack episode. I mean, we talked about there is so much good going on in this episode. What really bring it down for me is I understand the foibles that come with the Jack character. I can't say I'm really that into the way he behaves through a lot of this episode. And while we do get a bit of substantiation as to why he feels that way, I don't think it necessarily helps me enjoy the way he's acting, especially in front of Kate. So I think that sort of bogs it down for me. But other than that, we get character pairings that even 11 episodes in we haven't seen before in Walton Hurley and Walton Sawyer. And Sawyer. We get a nice follow-up with the Sawyer and Saeed stuff. That's a continuation of a really interesting long-term storyline that really ended on a very crazy note several episodes ago. We get a beautifully emotional scene, a very illustrating flashback, and we end up one of the biggest game-changers in the series' history. So I can't quibble with it too much. So it gets a solid four for me. All right, so a four from Mike, a 4.2 from me. As it stands, the audience has given it a 3.7 for all the best Cowboys have daddy issues. And just to give like a little sampling of what that looks like, uh, how does it get to a 3.7? Somebody gave it a 2.7. Somebody gave it a 2.5. The rest are in like the mid threes to to fours. Uh, So those, those two are really bringing down the party for all the best Cowboys have daddy issues but rounding everything together averaging everything up it leaves us at a 3.96 uh and makes it officially the fourth best episode of lost so far the list is the moth at 10 tabula rasa or should i say tabula rasa at Mm. nine raised by another at eight confidence man at seven house of the rising sun at six solitary at five all the best cowboys at four white rabbit at three pilot at two and walkabout at one. Those are the rankings as they stand. Flexible document. Send in your rankings, your uh, your 4.2 stars to down the hatch at postshowrecaps 
Com. That is where you can send all of your feedback, questions, and comments for the 1516 Others section. When we come back for next week's episode, you will not have to wait a month for the next episode of Down the Hatch, much like we had to wait a month for the next episode of Lost when All the Best Cowboys originally aired. Whatever the case may be. Oh, I think we've got a new uh, new little tender. Watch out. Pilot watch out walkabout. Someone's oh, coming for the top. Oh, baby. You know, I think I'm going to temper the fact that I gave all the best Cowboys a 4.2. I think uh, the, the other shoe is going to drop with whatever the case. Or maybe not. I haven't revisited it yet. But for a long time, I, I would say that this was my least favorite episode of Lost. That has changed as of the last two times I've done my rankings of Lost. Uh, but I have not gone back and watched this episode in a while. Uh, will it be better because we can make fun of it and have a good time podcasting about it? I certainly hope so. But I definitely think that this is the first stinker that we're going to account, uh, encounter. Uh, and that's actually kind of fun. I'm kind yeah. of excited about it. Well, I think it also doesn't help in the chronology that it falls in. You know, we are coming off of a really big wallop of episodes. Even stuff like Confidence Man and Raised by Another, which are, you know, in the bottom half of our rankings are still getting like 3.5 averages. So they're still really good episodes. And we end on such a big note with an all-time episode. And then we follow up with this. I have not uh, reinvestigated whatever the case may be in a long, long time. I am very interested to see where we go from here. We spoke a lot about the idea of the Kate flashbacks into Boo La Rasa and whether or not that was the best one. And we'll see if our theory holds immediately with the next episode. Oh, it's not going to be great, but it's going to be very fun to podcast about. I cannot wait. That podcast is going to drop in your feed on November 1st. We want your feedback. Get it into us by October 29th, the morning at the very latest. That is the best way to make sure that you are getting into the podcast. Uh, send that into us down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. You can tweet at us as well at postshowrecaps. I'm at Round Howard. Mike is at a Mike Bloom type. If you have not subscribed already to Down the Hatch, we really would love it if you did that. Uh, postshowrecaps.com slash down the hatch for our Apple feed. But wherever you get your podcasts, your ratings and reviews, Greatly, greatly appreciated. Tons going on elsewhere in the podcast universe. Uh, I've got Mr. Robot podcasting here on Post Show Recaps with Antonio Mazzaro. I've got Walking Dead with Jessica Lee. Antonio and I also have the Watchmen podcast over at Series Regular on The Hollywood Reporter. We will be back next week with whatever the case may be. Oh, my goodness. Take care, everybody. <laughs> Bye-bye. Four, eight, fifteen, sixteen, twenty, forty-two, 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 four, e